0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 131 of the Common Descent Podcast, this episode's topic is volcanoes, Ooh, a very exciting topic, a bit more geology for the people that like that. And also, uh, totally by coincidence, a very timely episode topic, <laughs> right? The we are. This is the first episode we will be releasing after the major eruption that happened in uh, Tonga shortly before this recording. And we, that is not planned. We picked <laughs> this episode topic months ago. So that is a total coincidence, but we will talk about that uh, particular series of events here in just a little bit. But the majority of this episode, we are going to, as with everything, come at the topic from a paleontological deep time evolutionary perspective. We will talk about what volcanoes are, how they form, how we study them in the past, and the relationship between volcanoes and life. Yes. How volcanoes interact with life today and and what their storied history has been together across the history of life on earth
1: as usual with the geotopics i'm very excited to learn just a, a ton
0: i know more about volcanoes than i thought that i knew but i <laughs> and now i have a ton of great new information to share this is going to be a lot of fun for those people by the way who follow us on social media we have a habit oftentimes of posting teaser images that sort of are a clue as to what the episode's going to be about. And sometimes they're more obscure than others. So for those of you wondering, the teaser image we posted in advance of this episode is curved ash layers in an outcrop in Japan. Those are layers of volcanic ash laid down on curved landscape. That (laughs) gives them the curved shape. It's a very cool picture. And I posted it and went, oh, this is a a hard one.
1: (laughs) It feels like looking at stuff after snow has fallen and it's just perfectly followed the contours of everything. Yep. Uh, just it's ash from dead, exploding Deadly mountain. shards. Of, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this episode not only is a cool topic, not only is unexpectedly timely, but as always was requested. This particular topic and subtopics within that we will discuss in more detail was requested by Catherine, Agnes, Milu, and Zabby. Thanks for the requests. Thanks, everybody. Oh, hey, speaking of requests, last episode was all about smell. Yes, it was. And you talked a whole bunch about the Jacobson's organ. Well, yeah. Well, turns out we had a request for Jacobson's organ from Jamie, which we neglected to say <laughs> in the last episode. Oops. So sorry, Jamie. That, our bad. We <laughs> missed it. Yeah, we... With-
1: Every now and then, things things will kind of sneak by in the list yeah. if they're not in the category we're expecting, or we I, I didn't realize how much I was going to talk about the Jacobson's organ.
0: Yes, so <laughs> very sorry. Jamie deserves requester credit for that.
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> All right, let's continue on our journey towards volcanoes. Before we get there, we're going to talk about news, but even before that, we have just a couple of announcements. As usual, our first announcement is that we have a Patreon. Our Patreon support from our patrons funds everything we do with the podcast. Hosting it, purchasing equipment, going on trips when we go on trips, all sorts of things like that. Our sincere thanks to all of our patrons. And part of the thanks is that they get extra goodies. They get director's notes. They get bonus audio, like bonus news. They get a bunch of cool additional, you know, prizes, rewards for being patrons. And one of them is that when you subscribe at a certain level, we will shout your name out. Here on the podcast. And boy, the beginning of the year has been a good time <laughs> for people to sign up for Patreon. This episode, we welcome Greg, Barry, Clayton, Gavin, Sam, Ginny. And a curious turtle. <laughs> Welcome all curious turtles and people. <laughs> Thanks
1: for the support. I'm
0: so excited we're finally reaching the reptile community out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. It's it a feels lot. Good. We've been our, our, our praises for them have finally reached the right ears <laughs> or the right holes in the I side am, of I the was about to say.
1: <laughs> That's
0: why it took them so long. They don't they don't hear very well we only have one more announcement for this episode and that is that there will be a lot more announcements coming up in our five-year anniversary live stream which should be at the very end of the month very end of the month january 29th which is technically the day after our official five-year anniversary yes saturday which is why we're doing it that day Mm -hmm. at 2 p.m eastern time in the afternoon We will be hosting a live stream. This is not one of our Patreon live streams, which we do on a regular basis. This is for everybody. Anyone who is a fan is welcome to join the live stream. Ask us questions. Tune in. We will be chatting with our audience and making a number of special announcements. We've got a few things to reveal. We've got a few things to announce. We have a bunch of stuff that we're going to put out there as a celebration of being around for five years. By the time this episode comes out, information about the live stream will be posted on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Patreon. So if you follow us or go over there, find that information, you'll find links to the YouTube video where you can join us. And hey, we're super excited about having done this for five years. We know we have a lot of listeners who are new and a lot of listeners who are old. In the days before the live stream, if you've listened to this ahead of time, go ahead and start posting at us. Let us know some of your favorite things from our five-year history. What are your favorite episodes? What are your favorite dumb jokes that we've made? What's your favorite news? You, we, we've been thinking for months now of back over our five years. Uh, we encourage you to think back over the five mm-hmm. years and let us know. Let us know what sort of cool memories you have. We'd really appreciate it.
1: Absolutely.
0: So, like I said, keep your eyes on our social media. Keep your eyes on our Zazzle store. Uh, Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. More stuff to come. Just cause. (laughs) Well, with that out of the way, it is time to move on to the news. Every episode, before we get into the main discussion topic, we like to spend some time going over some bits of news from the world of paleontology, evolution, earth history, etc. Will, start us off with some news.
1: Very well. I have a news about an ankylosaur brain case.
0: I'm intrigued.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is a fun one. This is research by Marco Schad et al. in Scientific Reports, and the article is a press release by the University of Vienna in Science Daily.
0: Which will be linked on the blog post.
1: Blog post. So this is an ankylosaur brain case, specifically a nodosaur, uh, which we talked about in the ankylosaur episode. Episode 69, ankylosaurs are the armored dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And you have the ankylosaurids, which have the club tails that we typically think of. But there were the nodosaurids, which had typically not club tail. They had like armored still, but no club, but often spiked shoulders or necks. Mm -hmm. Like a ring of particularly notable armor around the neck. This particular nodosaur is Struthiosaurus austriacus, which they said was a comparably small nodosaur. So not one of your big massive tanks of a dinosaur. Uh, I didn't get a size estimate since it sounds like the brain case is the holotype for this species. Oh, so that's what they have. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. If, it didn't mention if there were any other remains from this group, from this particular species. Uh, it's tiny, 50 millimeters long, uh, two inches roughly. So partial brain case, late Cretaceous, Austria, 80 million years old. That's the fossil they're researching. They did some micro CT scans to get a detailed look at what the inside structure of the brain case, which as we've mentioned, can give us some insights into the shape of the brain and other neurological structures around the brain.
0: Yeah, episode 121. Also episode 130, we talked about that a bunch.
1: Yeah, we did. And they noticed a bunch of things that potentially give us insights into the lifestyle of this nodosaur. First, it generally resembles others of its relatives, other brain cases that have been scanned from closely related ankylosaurs. Makes sense. One of the things that it shared with those other groups was a very small flocculus, which is a part of the brain, a very evolutionary old part of the brain, that is focused on fixing the eyes while moving. So while either the head is moving or the body is moving or the neck is moving, keeping the eyes focused on something.
0: Okay. You know, so motion compensation is what it's sounding like. Right. I'm thinking of when those chickens that when people move them around, the head stays stable. Yeah. Like it, that, but for your eyes. But for your eyes, exactly.
1: So it's it's targeting for your eyes, basically, to be able to lock onto something and keep track of it while you are in motion. Uh, It's very important for predators tracking prey, but also things tracking aggressors, you know, to Mm -hmm. keep track of a predator attacking you. Uh, This has been inferred that they may have just not needed that as much since they were relying on armor. So you don't need to be fixating on danger when there's nothing that can threaten you since you're a tank. In addition to that, one thing they noticed was a network of vascular canals surrounding the brain case, which adds support to the idea of thermoregulation adaptations in Enkalosaurs, that that was a, a coolant system for the brain. Right, right. We've talked about that mm-hmm. uh,
0: in the news and in a bunch of things, that the while breathing, you're cooling the blood, and then you can f- have that blood flow around the brain to cool things down. Yeah, so this seems to support
1: that they did have that sort
0: of brain coolant system built in.
1: They also noticed horizontal uh, oriented semicircular canals. So semicircular canals are the canals in our ears, those loopy ones that you'll see in anatomy
0: books. And yeah, in the internal, the interior of the ear.
1: Yep. That are for equilibrium. They are what make you dizzy when you spin and they're what lets you keep your balance and, you know, right yourself. The positioning of these supports previous ideas of the head posture, Oh. The way their position seems to support that they'd be holding their head in a way that has been predicted before. They didn't give a description of exactly what posture that was, but Mm -hmm. the canals match what has been previously thought, which is cool because it means, hey, secondary evidence.
0: Yeah, sure. For the
1: posture of this animal.
0: There have been a bunch of studies in different dinosaurs estimating, you know, they didn't all look straight ahead all the time. Some of them are thought to have had their heads sort of at rest, kind of aim downward a little bit. I know in some theropods, uh, part of the evidence for that comes from where the eyes are positioned, that your head, your head has to actually be tilted down a little bit to see over your own nose. Yep, yep, yep. So different evidences giving us an idea of how they held their heads.
1: And that was one of the other things noted here is that because this corroborated with previous evidences and estimates, it is further support that using the semicircular canals, the lateral ones could be a way to determine that. They also noted a shortened lagina, which is a part of the inner ear where a big part of auditory reception takes place. So very important for hearing. Uh, This is in fact the shortest of any dinosaur brain case yet studied, which suggests a much reduced hearing capability or at Mm. least emphasis on it. Their hearing is not particularly elevated. It's not prioritized. All of these things together, the lack of being able to fixate their eyes, the lack of hearing, and some other features with the semicircular canals that suggest that equilibrium was not particularly important, it was not vital for them to be able to keep their balance uh, while moving quickly, suggests a fairly, as they put it, inactive lifestyle.
0: Right. You're not running marathons. You're not
1: racing through the forests. Exactly. You're not needing these tools for keeping up with rapid movement or a particularly active lifestyle where you're keeping track of a bunch of things Mm -hmm. they also suggested that the reduced hearing may indicate a more solitary lifestyle that if you aren't socializing heavily you don't need to be able to hear yeah you're not talking to each other you're not talking to each other you're not listening to each other so you might not be hanging out together and so the one of i think the news article uh, the, the press release had a type that was like that they were slow and deaf.
0: Yeah, I've seen a bunch of headlines for this one that were, yeah, ankylosaurs were sluggish and deaf. Yep. <laughs> that seems a bit mean. It's it's And it seems a bit more than what's actually
1: suggested here, but yeah, they don't seem to be very quick on their feet yeah. or in
0: their perceptions. These kinds of findings are really interesting because on the first hand, you know, like those headlines, you read that the headline and it says, yeah, they were slow and they didn't hear very well. It's tempting to think, oh, they weren't, impressive they weren't good at stuff exactly but it makes me wonder what were they good at Mm -hmm. you know i would imagine an animal that is not potentially hearing very well and even maybe not seeing very well at least in certain regards probably was a really good smeller for example that maybe they were communicating with a sense of smell right the territorial sense or finding food or stuff like that
1: one the other thing that it makes me think is Like you said, it's very easy to draw the conclusion of like, wow, this wasn't very good at being a dinosaur, was it? (laughs) Like, (laughs) You couldn't look at stuff that was while you were moving around. You couldn't hear much. You didn't have a great balance or at least you weren't focusing on it. But what that says to me is either what were you good at or you could afford to not be good at those things. Right. It's like a turtle. I was
0: (laughs) was just thinking, well, because I was trying to think what animals today are like that. And I thought, yeah, I wonder, I don't know for sure about turtles, but I don't think they're known for hearing or visual capability.
1: No, not that I know of.
0: And yeah, because you don't really need to be.
1: Yeah. It's when you, when not much can mess with you Mm -hmm. and all you have to do is get from plant A to plant B. And in your own time.
0: In your own time. (laughs) And no one can stop you. From guess, getting there, unless it's a sauropod. <laughs> particularly tortoises. Mm-hmm. So now I'm really curious to know. Yeah. Because, like, I know rhinos are often talked about not having great senses of vision. Mm-hmm. You know, comparatively, they can see. I don't know how their hearing supposedly is. I feel like there's got to be something to it since they've got those prominent ears.
1: Like, they're not they are bitty. Prominent. I They're not big. Like they're like off the head and they're mobile.
0: They are also fly swatters.
1: Yes, that's true. So it may be more to do with that. Yeah. But yeah. ver-
0: are they really good smellers? Like, mm-hmm. are, are rhinos also bad at seeing and hearing because they're rhinos? And- <laughs> <laughs> What's, all right, that's fine with me.
1: Yeah, come at me.
0: <laughs> Your funeral. <laughs> well, you mentioned that that fossil came from Austria. I've got a bit of news from Australia. Segway! Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> We're getting better and better all the time. But while often we discuss news of new fossils, well, we discovered a new fossil or like yours. We've re-examined a fossil This is a report on a new fossil site. Oh. And an exciting one.
1: I'm excited just because of new site.
0: This is research by Matthew McCurry et al. in Science Advances, and we will link to an article in National Geographic by Michael Greshko. The new site is known as McGrath's Flat. It is in New South Wales, which is in southeastern Australia. It is named for Nigel McGrath, who first found the fossil, originally leaf fossils. In his fields, the site preserves a rainforest ecosystem from the Miocene, estimated at between 16 and 11 million years old. All The new paper compiles a bunch of research that the researchers have done, basically introducing the site. Say, we have studied the site. Here is what we're finding. Here's why the site is exciting. Here's what's going on here. It is exciting mainly for two reasons. Reason number one, it is an exciting time period. During the Miocene, Australia, along with the rest of the world, was getting drier. And as that happened, it eventually lost its rainforests. These rainforests, these sort of moister, more moist environments, became diminished and gave way to the grasslands, shrublands, and deserts that we see in a lot of Australia today. But there are not many fossil sites in Australia that document this transition. We have a bunch of information about afterwards, that's what it's like today, but we don't have a lot of information about what Australia was like before this transition. This site shows us one of those moister, lusher environments. The other thing that's really exciting, and the reason that it's made the news with lots of pictures, is that the preservation in this site is fantastic. The authors have announced it as a conservat Lagerstaten, which means really, really great preservation. Other Lagerstaten sites include the Burgess Shale, They include the Solenhofen limestone places, I think the Solenhofen limestone, places where the preservation is fantastic. Exceptional. At this site, they document a rich diversity of microfossils, plants, invertebrates, and vertebrates. A few examples that they mention in the article include the fossils being so well preserved that they they preserve leg hairs on spiders, pores on leaves... And melanin, the pigment molecules, in feathers. Wow! They also document some lifestyle information, such as a sawfly with pollen on its head, from probably having recently visited a flower, fish with midges, which are mosquito cousins, in their bellies, and at least one fish that had a parasitic muscle larva on its tail.
1: <laughs>
0: Exceptional preservation. Wow! The fossils are preserved in an iron-rich mineral called goethite, which that uh, the site is interpreted as an oxbow lake. So an oxbow lake is what happens when a meandering river, so a river, as a river gets older, what tends to happen is it goes from being a straight path to a sinuous, curving back and forth path. Yeah, as it erodes the banks in a uh, snake-like pattern. Yelp. Yep. Eventually, what can sometimes happen is that one of those bends becomes so far off to the side that it eventually gets cut off from the rest of the river and becomes a little separate body of water, an oxbow lake. This is thought to be one of those where nearby basalt deposits, hey, that's a volcanic rock, would dissolve into the water and provide iron. And then every now and then that iron would end up being deposited in these layers of iron-rich minerals that preserve these fossils.
1: It's like it, baby.
0: <laughs> a couple other cool notes that were mentioned in the article that I, th- I thought were amazing. One, the authors point out that they study a lot of the fossils under scanning electron microscope, and they note that usually, before you do that, you have to coat samples in thin layers of metallic material just to prepare them to be most effective under the electron microscope. But the fossils from McGrath's flat are already so iron-rich and conductive that they can just be put directly under the microscope.
1: Yeah! They are
0: ready for the microscope as soon as they're <laughs> excavated. <laughs> and they made another really cool note that they, th- and this is all preliminary, so, you know, this there's going to be more research. They have reason to think that the lake's de- deposition cycle might have been linked to seasonal monsoons, in part because they found a number of insect fossils Of types of insects that tend to only be active in the spring and summer. Okay. And they found a bunch of flower fossils that seem to have become fossilized before they bloomed. Oh. So this site might be capturing a particular time of the year. Yeah. Over and over again.
1: That's really neat.
0: So a very cool new exciting fossil site.
1: I'm so excited to just see what comes out. Like, it, you know, a new fossil site is notable and, and great because new locality, that means there we can find, even if it's the same stuff we found, you know, even if no new species are found in a right. new locality, it's still a new location.
0: Yeah. New information, yeah. new data.
1: So it, it could be from a slightly different position. We we might get range extensions. We might and, go, oh, this is a climate we hadn't found them in before.
0: And this site will absolutely have new species. Oh, yeah. and New the, environment, new time period. Very cool.
1: The idea of a brand new fossil site, especially one that's this well-preserved, not having something new is also not... It's kind right. of a, 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 an odd idea.
0: <laughs> well, this is exciting to me. Not to make everything about us, but... It reminds me of the Gray Fossil site, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is not, you know, it's not new, new anymore. It's 20 years old at this point. But we have both followed the Gray Fossil site for a good chunk of its history. And there have been a lot of very exciting finds. It is not too, you know, it's a relatively close age, right? Just after the Miocene Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with new stuff, with exceptional preservation. So this site feels like, The early days of another site like that, like here is a site where we're going to find a ton of cool new stuff.
1: Well, and and I'm I'm so excited because, like you said, the Great Fossil Site, our image of it has changed so much, Mm -hmm. and it's like we already have already the note of like, oh yeah, pores on leaves that was cool enough for a news,
0: right? (laughs) You could have just found that. Yep. But then you found you, all this other stuff. We found a stuff. spider with its leg hairs fossilized. Great. Yeah. That's, that's enough. You made it into the podcast. Let's go home. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, the authors point out that some of the stuff they want to do into the future, obviously, you know, understand the environment, understand the climate. Uh, they want to try to narrow down the age. So the, the, the site, again, much like the Gray Fossil site, our initial estimate was a span of a number of millions of years. This is like that. They're going to try to narrow down that estimate and understand climate change in the past of Australia. Yeah. Which the article uh, is specifically mentions, that's very handy for understanding how Australia got to be the way it is today. But also, we are talking about a time period where changing climates and aridification, drying out, cause certain ecosystems to fail and give way to other ecosystems is, as always, very relevant to today. For reasons. For reasons. So that, I'm very excited to see what else comes out of McGrath's flat. Also good name. It's a pretty cool name. McGrath's
1: flat sounds like there's a person with a shotgun
0: guarding it. (laughs) I mean, it might might be Nigel.
1: (laughs) Maybe he's there. (laughs) I love it. Mr. McGrath, can we come look at your fossils? (laughs) Well, speaking of determining what things were like before the way they are now,
0: Sure. (laughs) You're going to talk about paleontology. (laughs) I am. Oh, great. I was hoping we'd get some of that in this podcast. How'd you know? This is
1: news about a horse-like animal before true horses, domestic horses, got to Mesopotamia. And a genetics study that might have determined what it was. Okay. So... This is research by Andrew Bennett et al. in Science Advances, and the article is by Jake Bueller in Science News. So, in Mesopotamia, domestic horses were introduced around the late 3rd millennium B.C., uh, so not until 4,000 years ago. Give us your take. But before that, in that area, there are documentations, uh, tablets and seals, uh, that reference Congas, which were not the same as our domestic horses, but were horse animals, horse-like animals, shown in artwork and described in writings in these tablets and seals as being extremely important, highly valuable animals for diplomacy and war, and there are even descriptions describing their breeding, intentional breeding. Huh. So something... Other than Uh, domestic horses. Pre-horse. Yes. And so it's an equid. It's definitely a cousin of horses, but Mm -hmm. it's not horses as we think of them today. It's not from the same domestication lineage. But no one's ever been able to determine what they were. You know, what were they domesticated from? This research is in response to a discovery of a number of equids from... Bronze Age burial urns, uh, early Bronze Age, so about 2600
0: BC. These are royal barrier complexes. Mm -hmm. So half a millennium before you mentioned the earliest horses as we know them there. Mm -hmm.
1: And these are found in Syria, which makes these skeletons, uh, there's dozens of equine skeletons, as they describe, about 4500 years old. And the physical features don't match any known equines, horse or horse relatives that we know of today. So it's been interpreted that these
0: are congas. Okay. That these are weird horses from the places that we're talking about weird horses.
1: Exactly. So these seem to be some of those horses. So they did some genomics. They studied the genes of one of these specimens, another specimen, another ancient specimen of a Syrian hemipi, which is a specific type of Asiatic wild ass, which as a species went extinct, it was a subspecies that went extinct in 1929. The last species, oh, the last individuals died out then, and they compared that with genetics of horses and donkeys, and they found that if these are indeed Congas, they were F1 hybrids, meaning they were first generation hybrids between female domestic donkeys and male Hemapees, which makes this the earliest evidence of human hybridization, like of human led domestic hybridization. The next oldest is from 1000 BC, a mule in Anatolia reported by the same
0: group of researchers. Interesting. And mules being hybrids of domestic donkeys and domestic horses. Yes. So this was a wild ass and a domestic donkey hybrid.
1: Yes. Their thinking is that the Kungas may have been created for warfare because uh, they were noted as being valuable for that. And their thinking is that they, according to the documents, Kungas could pull wagons, which is important for war. Sure. Uh, which is good for donkeys. Donkeys are great at that. But coaxing a donkey into high-stress situations, they are not good at. Mm-hmm. Donkeys are very stubborn. That's not what they do. While Asiatic wild asses can't be tamed, uh, is the, the common thing that I, I found a couple of things that mentioned that when i looked up it would be like what is this uh they're considered untamable and that the thinking is potentially that's why they bred the two
0: right to, to get you. something that is useful like a donkey but s- stubborn and determined
1: Yep, yeah, but and tough a little more go get 'em mhm uh, which they said means these could be considered as bioengineered war machines. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> which is, oh, oh, great. That should be in all the titles. Uh, so, yeah. Earliest evidence of human domestic uh, uh, hybridization.
0: Interesting. One more point to the ever-increasing complexity of the history of domestication. Oh, yeah. Episode 27. Uh, that's very... That's uh, You know, I, I hear so much about dog domestication and cat domestication, I, I don't hear nearly as much about horses and even less about donkeys mm-hmm. just in, in the sources that I hear from. So that's a really cool discovery to find.
1: Well, and it's cool to think that a, a different culture got something that seemed like basically a horse, so like in, in its function and usability.
0: That was not actually the same lineage as the horse. Yeah, that we've tried, we've domesticated the horse group, right? Equids a number of different times in a number of different ways. Yep. We've created a bunch of designer donkeys. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. One more bit of news, and we are not yet at our main discussion of volcanoes, but to transition us nicely into our main discussion, I'd like to talk about the volcano that just went off A few days before this recording, and not very long before this episode releases, the volcano in Tonga. It has been all over the news. It is a a major natural occurrence and natural disaster, uh, both very interesting to talk about, very important to talk about, and very relevant to this episode. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, this is not news about new research. This is just reports of what we know and what's been going on with this volcano. Yeah, this is, this is just news. This is just news. Just new stuff. Uh, we will link again in the blog post. Uh, I'm going to put a link to an article in the New York Times from Henry Fountain and an article in The Conversation by Shane Cronin, both of which discuss uh, the history of this region uh, geologically and the science of the volcanic activity. Nice. So, the headline is, a massive volcanic eruption occurred on January 15th in the Kingdom of Tonga. Uh, For those unfamiliar, the Kingdom of Tonga is a Polynesian country and an archipelago consisting of about 169 islands, more than 30 of which are inhabited by people. It is in the South Pacific, it's north of New Zealand, it's not far from Fiji and Samoa. The population of the kingdom is estimated at a little over 100,000 people. The volcano in question has a long name, and I think the proper-ish pronunciation is something like Hunga Hungahaapai. All right. It is named after the two islands that are part of the volcano. More on that in a second. I'm not going to say the whole name again, just in case I'm butchering the pronunciation. <laughs> Thank you to Jonathan on Twitter for helping me track down a recording to hear how that is said. The volcano itself features a large caldera, so that is a volcanic crater, that is about 3 miles or 5 kilometers wide underwater. It's about 150 meters, 500 feet underwater. Previous eruptions have created small islands near the rim, uh, or on the rim of the caldera. Those are the two islands, Hungatonga and Hungahapai. There are significant eruptions noted back in 2009, And then again, significant eruptions in late 2014 into early 2015. And recently, the last several weeks, there have been new eruptions, starting in December 2021, leading to this January, as we speak now. The big eruption happened on January 15th. I first became aware of this eruption when I was scrolling through Twitter and came across a GIF of the satellite image of the eruption cloud.
1: Oh, I haven't seen that. It was
0: caught on satellite. It's incredible footage. This was a massive eruption. According to Tonga Geological Services, the maximum extent of the eruption cloud was a radius, so distance from the center, of 500 kilometers, <laughs> or 300 miles. Oh, The ash plume went at least 30 kilometers or 20 miles high. The explosion itself created tsunamis across Tonga and the Pacific, including parts of East Asia and the West Coast of the Americas. Alaska and California, I believe, recorded some tsunami activity. And the shock waves from the explosion bounced all around the atmosphere, all around the world, triggering more tsunamis, smaller tsunamis in the Atlantic, the Mediterranean, and the Caribbean, people in New Zealand reported hearing the explosion over 2,000 kilometers away from the volcano. Oh. This was huge. This is enormous. This is a massive volcanic eruption. It is being compared most commonly to the eruption of Mount Pinatubo in 1991 and as being cited as the largest eruption since then. This is the biggest volcanic eruption in the last 30 years. It,
1: and I, we're going to get into this, because that's what this episode is titled. Mm-hmm. Uh, the scale and power, is is it's hard to actually comprehend. Yeah. Like, it is difficult for a human brain, my brain at least. <laughs> your human brain. <laughs> to wrap itself around and really accept that, like, like a 300-mile radius cloud... It that is so
0: the sc- yeah. area of that is is hard. It's like the state of Pennsylvania. <laughs> like,
1: what are you?
0: Huh? I think that I think the radius is the state of Pennsylvania. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, if, I, if I remember the size of Pennsylvania off the top of my head. Well, and the thing that gets me because there are similar tales from Krakatoa's explosion mm-hmm, back mm-hmm. in the late 1800s of people thousands of kilometers away. Heard the explosion. Yeah, that's like if a, if something blew up in Maine and people heard it in Florida. Yes, that's mind-boggling.
1: It it's well, it, it's hard to picture that this <laughs> that these things can happen, and and it's all it's okay. Like the Earth's
0: not currently <laughs> right. Well, it's okay for the Earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> like,
1: but like that. This is just something that happens.
0: This is not a sign of the apocalypse. Exactly. Of like, the whole planet. Th- that
1: this isn't like oh something must be. drastically wrong with the ocean if this is happening.
0: Well, indeed, uh, geologic deposits indicate that this has happened before. This particular caldera last erupted this big in 1100 AD. Oh, okay. So a a thousand years ago, this went off. This particular explosion is thought to have been exacerbated by the fact that it is in shallow water. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If an eruption like this had happened in deep water, the water pressure would have contain some of the eruption. In this case, the shallow water just meant that magma met water and created steam. Yeah. Which probably expanded and exacerbated the blast of the explosion. There has been a lot of discussion about impacts. Uh, There has been a lot of talk about, you know, Pinatubo and Krakatoa, both of which were similar sized eruptions and both of which had long lasting climate impacts. Oh. Famously, Pinatubo and Krakatoa both put enough sulfurous gas, sulfur dioxide, into the atmosphere to block enough sunlight to drop global temperatures a little bit for a few years. So far, geologists don't expect this to do the same thing, just because there wasn't that much sulfurous content from what we can tell. It was much lower in that content. Uh, not expected to alter climate long-term, but it might very well alter weather patterns. Yes. Especially in the region. The islands themselves on the caldera do not seem to mostly be there anymore.
1: Oh. Uh, which
0: is not uncommon in volcanic eruptions. Yeah. That's but, where the explosion happened. But still. <laughs> and the atmospheric effects are uh, expected to potentially cause some interference with, like, GPS systems and radio communication. Because it's filled the atmosphere with both physical things and (laughs) shockwaves bouncing around good point yeah now as usual uh, so far you know we've talked a bunch about the science and it is fascinating and it is amazing and it is incredible science and the two articles i'm going to link to in the blog post are very science focused but we it would be irresponsible of us to talk about this just in ooze and oz. people live in tonga there are people who live in the islands and people who live nearby and so far there isn't a ton known you know th- this happened just a few days before we we're recording this there is plenty of information still coming in this will continue to update as things become clearer not much is known about the extent of the damage from this eruption ash fall has occurred all across the region. Tsunamis, of course, have occurred. And between the two of those, there is significant damage recorded across the nation of Tonga. At least 100 homes have been damaged. I saw a couple places reporting that a good 50 homes have been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Completely. Underwater communications cables were damaged. Oh, right. Which has made it harder to get information. And the airports in Tonga are shut down. Uh, and that's because of Ash. Because Ash will really mess with airplane engines and such also visibility you just that's not a good thing to fly in
1: when when your air is full of particulates
0: tiny pieces of glass
1: it's it's not a good time to try to travel through it
0: from what i've seen uh, i've only seen reports of it of three deaths associated with the tsunami waves in the region but it should be noted that with communications limited and with airports shut down and given that there are a bunch of islands there that seem to be more isolated, mm-hmm. these are smaller communities, uh, there is a very good chance that these this understanding will change. Yeah. That we might learn of more deaths and more destruction as time goes on. It doesn't seem, you know, Pinatubo and Krakatoa and a lot of previous eruptions are famous for death tolls in, you know, the thousands. Mm-hmm. This does not seem... Hopefully to have, to be a similar event, um, but there has been damage. There have been casualties from this event and it will continue to develop, you know, uh, both because we're going to learn more. Mm-hmm. I know last I read, I think New Zealand is sending uh, supply ships, like the New Zealand Navy is sending aid overseas to go help them because they can't, they're not going to fly in there and the ships can carry a bunch of water and supplies. There's a bunch of evacuation plans, so... The situation will continue to, you know, more things will come to light, but also the volcano will continue to develop. Mm -hmm. As far as I've read, geologists don't expect, they expect this was the big one. Yeah. So there have been eruptions over the last several weeks. This seems to probably have been the culmination. There probably won't be another big one like this, but there could be continued volcanic activity for sure. And the impacts are going to continue for quite some time yeah uh, there is still clouds of ash in the sky there are still you know residual effects of the volcano happening
1: like i said earlier it's it's hard to really fathom the the scale and power of a volcano uh but then it's it's also easy to not realize how much it they do yeah like like I i didn't even consider tsunamis until you said it and then it was like oh yeah well duh of course, yep. that would cause tsunamis. Yeah, it it is. A, it's not just a thing popped. It there's. Right. It's
0: not just smoke and lava.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's more to it than that. Uh, and yeah. it's it's pretty insane to think about.
0: So keep your eyes and ears out for updates. I'll be watching uh, uh, for sure to see what more uh, comes of this event. What more we learn. This is. I, I think that I, I was really happy to be able to include this in the episode because not only does it lead us nicely into the topic of volcanoes but it's also before we get into the discussion it's a really nice reminder that we there is a there is a conundrum i find when it comes to natural disasters that as scientists and as people who appreciate earth systems and as as people who are just in awe of the planet that we live on there is this tendency to ooh and ah, to go, yep. wow, tsunamis and earthquakes and hurricanes and volcanoes, these are so cool. Wow, well, the 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 power involved in the event. How amazing, how cool, how fantastic. And it can be very easy to get caught up in the excitement of what is a fascinating event and forget that they, this damages not only, you know, ecosystems and habitats, but civilizations. Oh, yeah. Right. When a natural disaster happens, there are people involved. Yeah. So as we move into the rest of the episode, we're going to start talking about volcanoes and we're going to talk about volcano history and how volcanoes work. And we're going to be mainly talking about science. We're going to mainly be talking about natural ecosystems. We're not going to talk a ton about people impacts, uh, relatively speaking. But it is important to remember that while we're talking about, you know, lava and ash clouds and pyroclastic flows and tsunamis to temper our excitement a little. Yeah, just just a little bit that yeah, these are things that have impacts on people.
1: Yeah, the, that though it is a fascinating geological occurrence with really interesting science to discuss, uh, for many people it was a tragedy. Yes. Uh and that that's one does not negate
0: the other. Yep. Uh both both are true but both need to be remembered. So from this, we can now zoom out to the broader subject of volcanoes we'll talk about volcanoes through time we'll talk about volcanoes today starting with the big question of what are volcanoes
1: what was the thing in the news you just talked what what what,
0: what is that word you keep using (laughs) we will talk about uh, definitions formations structures and so on as we start our discussion after this short break Volcanoes are very exciting and very dangerous and very geologically interesting and diverse. And there's just so much to talk about. This this is going to be a very full discussion. <laughs> and we're going to leave out and gloss over a whole bunch of stuff. Yep. This is one of those episodes. There's a lot of really interesting things to talk about.
1: That does not surprise me at all <laughs> that, that that applies to the Volcano episode.
0: Well, yeah, th- this is a topic that could be that, that is a whole series mm-hmm. of podcasts. Uh, this is one episode, at least for now. But, but with your requests. <laughs> uh, there, there may be more. The word Volcano generally refers to an opening or vent where lava, ash, and gases trapped within the crust escape to the surface. Often the word is used specifically to refer to a mountain Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that is a place where that happens, but it doesn't have to be. A volcano can take many different shapes. It doesn't have to be a big mountain or hill that explodes, as long as it is an opening where these things release into the surface. Volcanoes form when magma, which is underground molten rock, forms deep under, usually forms deep underground. This can happen oftentimes because of tectonic activity. Go back to episode 122, plate tectonics. When continents collide or spread apart, they can create heating or changes in pressure that can cause deep rock to melt or partially melt into magma. Magma is buoyant compared to the crust around it, so it tends to rise. It finds ways to move up through the crust, carrying solid crystals and gases along with it. If it gets to the surface, it will either find, you know, a fissure or a crack, or if it can't find one, make one, (laughs) to release all this stuff. Uh, The molten rock comes out, at which point it is called lava. It's magma underground, and it's lava above the surface. Gases, carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, all sorts of gases trapped underground, and tephra. Tephra is the catch-all term for the solid stuff. Mm. So there's the liquid stuff, which is lava, there's the gases, and there's tephra. Tephra can be as small as minuscule particles of ash or volcanic bombs and blocks and just chunks of rock that some will tumble or careen through the air.
1: Tephra sounds like a name. Like, I picture this as, like, a, a volcanic power...
0: Yeah, like, a, it sounds like a, an X-Men. Yeah, exactly. And it should be, if it's not. Yeah, Tephra right. Tephra's a great name. I'm gonna, I'll make a character, a uh, D&D character, and call him Tephra. <laughs> Earth Genasi. Tephra, that's a, that's a cool name. Uh, there we go. Volcanoes are very abundant. This is a weird thing to think about, because volcanoes, they're so dramatic, and they, they seem so rare and unusual, and, and, you know, we were talking about the volcano in the news that this is, you know, a once in 30 years type of eruption. Like, these are dramatic which can kind of distract from the fact that they are not only very common but a perfectly normal and necessary part of earth systems. The United States Geological Society reports that they monitor 161 active and potentially active volcanoes just in the United States. Wow. Most of those are in Alaska. Uh, The rest are Hawaii, mostly, and uh, the Pacific Northwest, Mm -hmm. Washington, Mm -hmm. the Mount Rainier area. I've seen other reports uh, that estimate about 1,350 potentially active volcanoes across the world. Not counting ones in the ocean. (laughs) That's just on land. Just the ones we can see. So these are everywhere. They typically occur near plate boundaries. So again, episode 122... We talked about convergent plate boundaries where crust plates are pushing against each other and divergent where they're spreading apart. These places tend to have tectonic forces that create a lot of melting. Magma rises towards the surface and can give rise to volcanoes. Volcanoes can also happen at what are called hotspots. So hotspots are places that are not at tectonic plate boundaries, but are often in the middle of a plate, where there isn't sort of a subduction zone or a spreading center or anything like that, these are thought to be created by plumes of intense mantle activity that create magma formation on a certain part of the crust that rises up to the surface. These can happen outside of other areas. So you, go, you get your uh, ring of fire, or a ring of volcanoes around the Pacific Ocean that form on the subduction zones surrounding the Pacific Ocean, where the Pacific Plate is sinking underneath its adjacent plates. Mm -hmm. The Mid-Atlantic Ridge, right? The Mid-Ocean Ridges are where the crust is separating apart at a spreading center, allowing magma to come up. Hotspots tend to happen at seemingly random places elsewhere. Uh, Probably the most famous hotspot is Hawaii. Yeah. Hawaii is a series of volcanic islands in the middle of the Pacific Plate, because there is a hotspot underneath there, And that's also why there is a chain of islands. Yes. Because the plate is slowly moving, but the hotspot stays in the same place. So it'll create magmatic activity that creates a volcano that creates an island, but then gradually that island is moved off the hotspot and then another one forms.
1: Yeah, it'd be like moving a pan over a flame, and you can watch where the boiling intensity of water is in it will change, where the bubbles move because you're changing the position of the plate over, yes, yeah, it's which is one of my favorites. That's such a cool, easy demonstration of look at Hawaii. Yep. Notice how it's in a line. Yep. There you go.
0: You can <laughs> even see uh, where the plate changed direction. Yeah. Because Hawaii has a kink. Yes. Uh, in the island chain, the, the underground, uh, the underwater uh, islands farther out, and that's so cool. <laughs> Volcanoes are not just natural disasters. They are a part of the normal rock cycle and carbon cycle. Again, episode 122, Plate Tectonics. We talked about how subduction recycles crust. The oceanic crust is being eaten by Plate Tectonics, and it's pulling rock material off the surface and melting it back down into the mantle. Volcanoes are where new crust forms. Right, the volcanic activity in the oceans creates new ocean crust. Volcanoes can be uh, create new land on the continents, mm-hmm. or they can create islands like Hawaii. Volcanoes form new land. It is part of the crustal recycling and the carbon cycle. There are many mechanisms that draw carbon into rock. Right, the ocean floor is full of carbon. When things subduct, it's dragging a lot of that carbon down into the Earth's center volcanoes are one of the major ways that carbon is released back into the atmosphere from deep within the earth those big clouds of dust and ash are feeding carbon back up so volcanoes are one of these interesting yeah i, th- I think it can be easy to think of a volcano like a hurricane yes so it's like get random natural disaster it, it just kind of happens because of the way storm systems work but volcanoes in my mind are much more like earthquakes yeah they are happening all the time, everywhere, and if they didn't, there would be something seriously wrong with the Earth. Yeah, that's just part of the way the Earth functions, the way a healthy Earth functions. Yeah.
1: Well, and and it's much like earthquakes; they're happening all the time. And you know, you may be like, "Well, in some places, well, in a bunch of places, yeah,
0: all over the place, all
1: over the world, <laughs> earthquakes are happening all the time," but even if they're happening where you are, you usually don't notice them. Mm -hmm. They're usually small and inconsequential. I've slept (laughs) through ones before, and I I walked through one and didn't notice it. The one that happened here when we were in grad school. Yep, same. I was walking when it (laughs) happened, so I didn't feel it. That's how inconsequential it was. Since there wasn't a building around me for me to notice it doing stuff, I couldn't feel it. The volcano is like... If stuff's coming
0: up from the ground that counts as a volcano, most
1: of them just aren't making big
0: displays. Right. Well, and even, you know, we talked about the Tonga volcano in the news that had been erupting on and off for the last couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even the last several weeks, there were notable eruptions, but nothing so big that it was uh, uh, global news. Yeah. no one was worried about it until the one where it was worrisome. Yep. Hawaii is erupting right now. Yeah. You know, so volcanoes are just a normal, everyday occurrence on our planet, which is weird to think about.
1: It's, just, it's usually a bit more benign than what you picture from movies mm. and uh, all the paleo art <laughs> that just has them <laughs> in the background.
0: Volcanoes are very diverse. And just like anything else, scientists have come up with methods of classifying volcanoes. Now, there is not one way to classify volcanoes. Uh, There are a bunch of different criteria. You can use the shape of a volcano. You can use the way it erupts. You can use its setting. The classic image of a volcano is as a mountain that builds itself.
1: Yes, they agree.
0: Typically, uh, you may have heard of the three kinds of volcanoes. There are not just three kinds of volcanoes, but I will go over the sort of classic classroom three kinds of volcanoes. The one from the Bill and I, the Science Guy episode. That's the one. Uh, Composite volcanoes, also called stratovolcanoes, are built, are are cones, big tall cones, built of layers of alternating lava flows and ash layers. Mm -hmm. So a volcano erupts letting out lava. Lava is molten rock. And once it's on the surface and it stops moving, it cools. And when it cools, it forms igneous rock. Lava and magma form all sorts of basalt and diorite and andesite and granite and all sorts of igneous rocks, so lava flows will eventually cool into layers of rock. Ash that is released out of a volcano will eventually settle and form layers of ash or mix with other stuff and form new layers. So a composite volcano is a volcano that releases lava, cools on its sides, and then ash falls down and forms a new layer and then each new eruption adds new layers to the volcano. So if you cut a composite volcano in half, you see these alternating layers of lava, cooled lava, and ash over and over again. These tend to form very uh, pr- pr- relatively steep cones. They are uh, very common. This is one of the most common on-land volcanoes, and they can be very dangerous. A few famous composite volcanoes include Mount Fuji, Mount Pinatubo, and Mount St. Helens just to name a few famous dangerous ones. Shield volcanoes, another classification, are formed very similarly, but they're mostly lava flow. Yeah. Not a lot of those intermediate ash layers. And so you just get these wide lava flows that cool into layers on the landscape, building up much more slowly and broadly atop each other. So shield volcanoes tend to form big domes. They tend to be very flat. Uh, and in fact, oftentimes a shield volcano can be miles across. Yeah. Because it's just a big, gently sloping dome. The Hawaiian islands are full of shield volcanoes. So Kilauea and Mount Loa, the big volcano, volcanic islands of Hawaii, are shield volcanoes. Makes sense. And then the third classic type are cinder cones. Cinder cones are the other end of the spectrum, mostly formed out of the solid rock material that comes out. So they're cr- they're, they're crumb volcanoes. <laughs> they are built of crumbs fragments, uh, cinders, as they are often called. See, right
1: now I'm picturing layer cake, pound cake, crumb cake. There you go. (laughs) Just like that.
0: (laughs) Cinder cones can often grow on other volcanoes because a volcano is often not a single vent. It can have side vents on the slopes. Uh, I think Mount St. Helens is an example of one that exploded on the side. Yep, 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 yep. uh, At one point when it erupted. But you can also get cinder cones uh, separate. The most famous cinder cone, perhaps, or at least the one I uh, know most about, is a cinder cone that formed in the 1940s in Mexico called Paricutin, which is the cinder cone that showed up overnight.
1: Oh, yeah, I have heard about that.
0: This is a vent that opened in a cornfield in Mexico, and it erupted for a while and then started erupting cinders out and reportedly grew a 50 meter tall volcanic Cone in a day, Pfft. showed up and then erupted for a while.
1: That's that's it. <laughs> it's not. It shouldn't be possible to have a volcano come around that quickly. That yep. just
0: shouldn't be allowed. I remember uh, there was a day a uh, long time ago. I think this was in grad school where a bunch of us were discussing the movie volcano with Tommy Lee Jones and etc. Where a volcano suddenly shows up in the middle of Los Angeles. And one of the criticisms that would come up was, was like, well, yeah. And also it's ridiculous to have a volcano just popping up in a day. And then our volcanologist went, well, (laughs) "Ah, well, a little bit. Yeah. I remember that. (laughs)
1: And I had the same moment
0: there of like, no, no, it's, it's such a, it's a really interesting story. I fundamentally disagree. (laughs) Now those are, like I said, the classic, the classroom examples, but there are plenty of other kinds of volcanoes. There are volcanic fields, for example. Uh, these are cases where you have many vents relatively near each other that each erupt separately. So sometimes it's a bunch of vents that each erupts only one time. Sometimes they erupt a number of times. Uh, the San Francisco volcanic field is one of these, where you just have a landscape of eruptions. Yeah, These tend not to form mountains because it's not erupting in the same place all the time. You also have submarine volcanoes. Volcanoes that form on the ocean floor, these can rise up to form seamounts, which are submerged plateaus of land, or if they get tall enough, islands. Yep. That's what a lot of islands are, as is they are emerging out of the land. These can form over hotspots. They also form in uh, near trenches. Island arcs tend to form alongside trenches where Crust is subducting down. And speaking of underwater volcanoes, there are also mid-ocean ridges. Again, episode 122... Mid-ocean ridges are spreading centers, places where two plates are pulling apart and magma is rising up, forming new ocean crust. The middle of many of our oceans, right right down the middle of the Atlantic and then continuing into parts of the Pacific and elsewhere, we have mid-ocean ridges, which are volcanically active areas where new crust is forming from volcanic activity. In the uh, Plate Tectonics episode, I quoted some source describing it as like the seams on a baseball.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: These just run all around the oceans of the planet, spreading basaltic lavas, which then cool to make up the ocean crust. These connected spreading centers, one of the websites that I was reading uh, descriptions of different volcano types, described the connected mid-ocean ridges as sometimes considered to be a single... 70,000-kilometer-long volcano. <laughs> That's terrifying. It is. It's uh, amazing. Our planet is leaking. it All the time. <laughs> Constantly. These are not the only kinds of volcanoes, and not uh, the only way to classify volcanoes. Volcanoes can be classified by their activity. So you may have heard the terms active, dormant, and extinct. Active means it... it keeps happening it's on right now it's happening right now <laughs> dormant means it hasn't in a while but it could still potentially erupt
1: yeah that there's there's still activity or that there's still signs that stuff could build up again yeah.
0: or, or there's no signs that it won't <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and extinct volcanoes are considered yeah they no longer have a source of magma to fuel them volcanoes often will reform So not only can, you know, if a volcano erupts and destroys itself, which often happens, it can then grow again because the magma source is still there. (laughs) If it it hasn't emptied out.
1: It was destroyed by what's making it.
0: (laughs) But in cases where like hotspots, once the volcano itself, the vent moves off of the hotspot because of plate movement, the hotspot's still going. So eventually it will form another vent. Uh, This is, again, why Hawaii is a chain of islands. Also leads to uh, one of my favorite examples of this, uh, Krakatoa. Uh, The island of Krakatoa, I believe, is Krakatau. And Krakatau uh, erupted in 1883 and destroyed the mountain. Mm -hmm. Krakatau did not survive the eruption of the volcano. But the magma source fueling that eruptive activity is still there. And several decades later, a new island began to form a little bit elsewhere, fueled by that same magmatic source into a new volcanic island, which the locals call Anak Krakatoa, which means the child of Krakatoa.
1: Oh, man. Which is great. And we're going to make a, a not quite as good sequel yeah, movie. Yeah,
0: a B-movie B sequel. It'll come out the same year as the original. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's... That's pretty... The son of
0: Krakatoa. Well, it's like, I always knew that that's
1: how hotspots worked, and, you know, the hotspot moves and it makes a new island, you know, or, you know, uh,
0: in between it's also doing
1: stuff, but finally, eventually, another island will pop up. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I never thought about it, there being the potential that the other one could break, (laughs) could be destroyed before it moves on, so it's... The island moved, kinda.
0: (laughs) Yeah, grew in a new place. (laughs) It teleported. Yeah. That's so cool. Volcanoes can be classified by their content, so the content of their magma, uh, and this is often linked to eruption style, which is another classification. There are effusive eruptions, which are generally calm. So, Hawaii, right? The big island of Hawaii is erupting right now, (laughs) as we speak. But these eruptions tend to be very just lava flows, just oozing, just seeping out. That always makes me think of
1: the the wax volcano thing that was at Fernbank when we went, which is they had this wax thing, pump up wax, and you could make these shield style volcanoes with oozing wax. Uh, And it's one of the coolest things. And I think of it all the time. And I wish we
0: had more time when we were there. (laughs) Yep. Very cool. We'll get one and put it in our basement. Yeah. We're going to need a basement. The opposite of an effusive eruption is an explosive eruption. This is exactly what it sounds like. The magma is torn apart on the way up or out. This is what you. This is your Mount St. Helens, your Pinatubo, your Tonga volcano that just went off. The volcanoes that explode. The difference is usually related to gas content, because gas bubbles are often what drives the explosion. Uh, so you'll get water vapor, you'll get carbon dioxide, and other gases that can form within the magma and build up. But if there isn't a release, then you just end up with a lot of pressure. Yeah. Just a lot of gas pressure, especially in viscous magmas. If they're stickier, some some magma like basaltic uh, lava uh, tends to be very viscous. It's very flowy. Mm. Others tend to be more sticky. They don't break apart as easily. So you get end up with just all this gas pressure with all these gas bubbles, so that when it finally releases, you get an explosion.
1: Yeah. Which makes sense, because it's tough to put rock under pressure, like actually pressurize it, uh, because it doesn't compress. But gas sure does. Oh, yeah. So you can build up incredibly high pressures with gas, and there's very little limit to how much you can build
0: up. Yeah. And this leads to another measure of classifying volcanoes, the Volcanic Explosivity Index.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Which categorizes volcanoes by how, how boom they go. Yeah. Specifically, this categorizes volcanoes by the amount of tephra they release. So tephra, again, ash, cinders, volcanic rocks and stuff. How much solid stuff comes out of the volcano. This is a logarithmic scale. So it's like the Richter scale where a, a 2 is 10 times more than a 1 and so on. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's not... You can't just compare and assume that... Right. A, a, a 4 is not twice as strong as a 2 on the scale. It is 100 times yep. more. Kilauea in uh, Hawaii usually receives a volcanic explosivity index of 0. All right. Because it's not usually releasing a lot of solid stuff. It's just oozing gas... Oozing liquids, lava. No boom. Mount St. Helens... Uh, famously erupted back in 1980, has been called the most destructive eruption in the history of the United States. Mount St. Helens is in Washington. Had a volcanic explosivity index of five. All right. Estimated to have released around 1.3 cubic kilometers of tephra. And this brings me to the last category of volcanoes that we'll discuss for this particular discussion, super volcanoes. Yeah. This is a term that comes up a lot. It's been in movies. It's been in the news. It's not, uh, to my knowledge, a technical term, or at least it didn't originate as a technical term. I'm pretty sure supervolcanoes originated as a sci-fi term.
1: Oh, uh, okay.
0: That this wasn't originally a science term. But generally, when you hear about supervolcanoes, we are referring to volcanoes that are capable of super eruptions that are eruptions that release at least... A thousand cubic kilometers of tephra. <laughs> Ugh. So again, Mount St. Helens was a little more than one cubic kilometer. This is a thousand more than that. This puts them at a volcanic explosivity index number of eight, the highest number that has ever been associated with an uh, eruption. All right. Cool. Super volcanoes tend not to be mountains. They tend to be holes. <laughs> when a volcano erupts, it tends to leave a crater behind, and that crater is called a caldera. Super volcanic eruptions tend to be so large and release so much material that whatever land was there collapses yeah. and leaves a big dome-shaped hole in the ground. There are actually a bunch of these. Lake Toba in Sumatra is a 100-kilometer-long lake, which is a flooded caldera. It is a big hole, and it's kind of like, a you know, the, the sinkholes that get flooded and become little lakes. This is that, but it's a volcanic crater. Yeah. That is a, a caldera left from the eruption around 74,000 years ago. Lake Taupo in New Zealand, very similar, erupted 27,000 years ago. But almost certainly the most famous supervolcano on the planet is Yellowstone. Yeah. Yellowstone located right here in the United States, mostly over in Wyoming, The Yellowstone Caldera is about 72 by 48 kilometers in area. It takes up most of Yellowstone National Park. (laughs) It is not filled with lake. It is filled with forest. Mm. If you look from above, the caldera itself is filled with forests and hot springs and geysers and tourists. This caldera was formed in an eruption 640,000 years ago. It sits above a still active magma chamber. Which is why Yellowstone has all those cool hydrothermal features. The hot springs, the geysers, the fumaroles, those are all water heated deep underground by being near these magma chambers. Yeah. And then it rises to the surface and, you know, creates steam vents and geysers and stuff. Yellowstone is also a hotspot and indeed has been moving across North America over the last several million years as the North American plate slides towards the west. So Ah. previous Yellowstone eruptions happened farther west. One other very important note about Yellowstone that we don't have time to go into any more any particular detail right now. Yellowstone is not about to erupt. It is not overdue for an eruption. It is not going to erupt anytime soon. This gets a lot of media play, movies and YouTube videos and news are all you. I've heard many many times. The super volcano underneath Yellowstone is bound to erupt any time. Yep. And when it does, it will destroy life as we know it. Mm-hmm. And it'll happen without warning. That's not true. It's not about to erupt. It won't happen without any warning and it won't destroy life as we know it. Yeah. Uh, there is a great SciShow episode about this. Go to YouTube. SciShow Yellowstone. I know it's great. I wrote it. <laughs> so watch that. And it, it talks all about the geology of Yellowstone and what we know about the super volcano Very cool. Uh, But if you were worried about Yellowstone erupting, you know, tomorrow, it won't. Don't worry. Yeah. Now, this is all so far volcanoes today. But, as usual, we like to have a deep time perspective. And there is plenty of study and discussion to be had about volcanoes in the past. We can interpret volcanoes of the past just like we can interpret life of the past and plate movements of the past. Past evidence of volcanoes. This is actually kind of an odd talking point because on the one hand there are like cool specific yeah here's an eruption and and here's the evidence but in the general sense most of the surface of the earth is evidence of past volcanic eruptions right like the ocean floor is created from the volcanic activity happening at spreading centers many perhaps most of the islands on the planet are formed by volcanoes. A lot of our continental landmasses formed by volcanic activity. So like, the surface of the Earth is itself mo- mostly evidence of past volcanic activity.
1: Yeah, the results of volcanism.
0: <laughs> Laid down by cooling lava, ash layers, volcanic rocks, pyroclastic flows, all that liquid and solid material can form into new layers of Earth. These are common all throughout the geologic column. In fact, these are often useful for understanding ecosystems in the past. It's not uncommon at all that you will get, you know, a few layers of sandstone or whatever, and then a layer of igneous rock, because a volcano erupted somewhere nearby and laid down some ash or laid down some lava. So we can get big scale things like the whole ocean crust, but also you can find evidence of specific eruptions. So here are some ash layers that are thicker in this direction, right? That's the direction the volcano was. Here is, you know, three eruptions over the course of a few million years in this habitat that laid down this sediment. What's very cool about these kinds of things is that when volcanic rock forms, it tends to trap information. So in the plate Tectonics episode, we talked about how the different parts of the ocean floor contain Paleomagnetic information that can give us clues as to the spreading history of the oceans. The minerals inside volcanic rocks can indicate conditions of the magmas that formed them. So we can get information about the temperature of the magmas and the water content. What kinds of minerals are there can tell us what kind of magma it was. The kinds of ash and such can tell us if it was explosive or not or how explosive it was. We can learn fascinating bits of details about volcanoes successive layers of eruption can tell us about patterns right was this a consistent pattern how often was it erupting all sorts of cool stuff like that these are also typically really good for dating volcanic rocks tend to have minerals isotopes that are really good for radiometric dating which is why so much of the time you'll hear uh, you'll read a study about we have this cool fossil site we dated the fossils based on an ash layer yeah that was laid down between the layers at some point.
1: That was one of the first things I remember when I first went to the great fossil site. I don't remember who said it. Uh, it, it was one of the professors, it may have, may have been Sean, but it was someone there. was We were talking about the age, and they were like, "Yeah, it's a real shame a volcano never went off, right?" <laughs> <laughs> while this pond was here, because that would have really helped us out. Yep. And that
0: was wait. the first time I learned how crucial they can be. <laughs> Volcanoes are often identified by their byproducts in the past. Lava, ash, but also their effects on the ecosystem. Uh, Certain materials, like mercury, can be identified in water or in soils that can be sourced from volcanoes. Atmospheric changes can be linked to volcanic eruptions. Rises in carbon or sulfur in atmosphere, uh, proxies in the past. Also, of course, like in the examples I listed before of uh, supervolcanoes, calderas, Mm
1: -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. right? Toba and Taupo and Yellowstone have a pretty obvious bit of evidence is that there's a big old hole right here (laughs) where a volcano once blew up. Something happened. (laughs) This kind of evidence is also how we study, for example, Yellowstone's history. So Yellowstone is the center of ash deposits that are found Across the western half of North America, from a number of eruptions in the past that were so big that they left ash deposits across the western half of North America. <laughs> we know from those deposits, for example, that Yellowstone erupted 2.1 million years ago, 1.3 million years ago, and the latest big eruption, 640,000 years ago. And we can estimate the size. So the last one is estimated to have been about a thousand cubic kilometers of tephra. The first one, the 2.1 million year old one, is estimated to have been twice that much. So twice as much as you need to classify at the highest level on the explosivity index. Overachiever. This kind of information, uh, the sort of leftovers of volcanoes, is also how we identify volcanoes in space. Yeah. Yeah. Right, we can find calderas or volcanic minerals or patterns of material that indicate volcanic activity. We've Such things have been found on the moon, mm-hmm. on Mars, mm-hmm. on Venus, and on at least Io, yes. which is one of Jupiter's moons. So volcanic, act, the same sort of evidence of volcanoes, works the same way on other celestial bodies.
1: Oh yeah, a, a rock in space that <laughs> is moving around on the inside makes volcanoes. Yep. That's that's what happens.
0: And then there is one more category of past volcanic evidence that we need to talk about which has come up on the podcast so often that it's almost mimetic. It's almost become a joke. I don't I don't think I know large going with this. igneous provinces. We have brought these up we these these have come up in every extinction episode we've ever done. Every single <laughs> one. Let's finally after mentioning them so many times a little zoom in <laughs> on what actually is a large igneous province. It's almost him to be like, but that's for another episode. <laughs> that's its own episode. If you want that, you need to request it. You better request it <laughs> ten times. <laughs> uh, right there in the name. Large, big, igneous, volcanic in origin, provinces, meaning a region of the surface of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like a province of Canada. That's what I was going to say. This is the section I have to fill out whenever I have to mail something overseas. What's the province that you're sending this to? Precise definitions of large igneous provinces vary. Generally speaking, it refers to a vast area of the surface that was created by volcanic eruptions. One recent specific definition that I came across defined them as a magmatic province with more than 100,000 square kilometers of surface. So volcanic material covering an area roughly the size of Iceland, (laughs) with eruption volumes, so the three-dimensional extent of the magma material, of over 100,000 cubic kilometers, produced, erupted, usually within the space of several to a few million years. All right. So a relatively short, geologically speaking, amount of volcanic uh, activity that creates an immense, a uh, landmass of volcanic rock.
1: Yeah, it's not that this happened over the course of, like, the Jurassic, but right. in a
0: fairly brief right. moment a million years a few million years several million years not particularly long a huge chunk of the surface was covered in lava <laughs> <laughs> now in the past when we've talked about large igneous provinces every now and then we talk about them almost like we're talking about the volcanoes themselves mm-hmm. large igneous province refers to the land form right like a lava flow right a, a, a basalt layer is what's left of a lava flow. Yeah. It has cooled. It is not currently flowing. Yes. Large Igneous provinces are the cooled results. They are typically a succession of flows, so they'll just be stacked, often basaltic, lava flows that just flowed over a landscape and cooled on top of each other. These include continental provinces with layers upon layers on land and oceanic plateaus. When an igneous province uh, is formed in the ocean, it'll create oftentimes a plateau that can be two or three kilometers high on the ocean floor formed by volcanic activity. Large igneous provinces are found all over the world. These massive chunks of volcanic remnants are found in every ocean and on every continent. A few examples include the Siberian Traps in North Asia, which date to around 250 million years ago, the Deccan Traps in India, which are 66 million years old, the Karoo in South Africa, and Ferrar in Antarctica, both around 180 million years old, the Central Atlantic Magmatic Province, which used to be all one place, but has been split by the Atlantic Ocean spreading. (laughs) So now this igneous province is found in North America, South America, and North Africa. Because it happened associated with the rifting of those continents when the Atlantic opened. That makes so much sense. And more. Igneous provinces are known from well before the Cambrian. The youngest one, as far as I can tell, is the Columbia River Flood Basalts in the northwest of North America, which is only 16 million years old. Okay. Relative, you know, that's about the same age as that new Australian site that we talked about in the news. Mm-hmm. Large igneous provinces often include surface flows and deposits, as well as underground networks. So you'll get dikes and sills and the cooled remains of magma moving underground, and then on top of that, the stuff that extruded onto the surface. Large igneous provinces are often associated with mantle plumes, hotspot volcanism, sometimes with rifting zones, and once again, like I said earlier on, Uh, that it's weird to think of volcanoes as being common because they're so dramatic. Large igneous provinces are extremely common. Yeah. I did not find a definitive list of like, how many are there on the planet today? Part of that is because the definitions, I think, vary a little bit. Uh, There is, I found a taxonomy of large igneous provinces that was recently proposed for how to categorize them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have seen dozens discussed of continental large igneous provinces, and I did find a list on Wikipedia, so, you know, take that as you will, Mm -hmm. that listed 184 oceanic plateaus. Wow. Evident today, comprising a total of more than 18 million square kilometers area of either ocean floor or former ocean floor. Some of these have accreted to continents.
1: Yeah. Wow.
0: These are, you know... Super volcanoes we think of as the most extreme type of volcanism that we, you know, imagine in terms of our volcanic, you know, a a boom. Yes. A super eruption is a big boom. These are perhaps the most extreme volcanic events in Earth history. These are often produced by repeated pulses of volcanic activity that continue for millions of years. Just continuously creating these volcanic landscapes until they have changed the landform. Yeah. They create a major landform. Just this was a place where for millions of years, there was a lot of continued volcanism.
1: Well, I think part of what makes it so difficult for my mind to really grasp and picture is that, you know, like you're saying, we think of super volcanoes as the... End all be all because it we can conceive of yeah a massive eruption yeah I've yeah. seen it in the movies big and singular we can get that whatever I saw there scale it up mm-hmm. but here it's like I wonder if we if you were living during the formation of one of these would you realize it was being formed or would you feel okay. like oh yeah there's a bunch of volcanoes over that area you but could... it's going to be continuing for hundreds of thousands or millions of years. Before and after I'm alive. So, like, mm-hmm. would you even notice you that? You could uh, live
0: your whole life between the eruptions.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, And not even see them. So it's not something that happens in this big cinematic dramatic, you know, perceivable dramatic way. But it leaves behind just a landmark that's h- hard to
0: calculate in a way we can really grasp. Yeah. And that's, that's a big deal. Oftentimes, uh, large igneous provinces are estimated to have been erupting for sometimes even tens of millions of years. Wow. But they'll have a peak. Okay. They'll be like, this few million years was the eruptive peak of this volcanic province. Yeah, the
1: activity was around, but there was a notable spike that mm-hmm. really is that. that few million of years that we're, we're typically talking about. That makes sense.
0: Uh, and here's a fun fact that some of our audience, and you, I'm sure, will appreciate. There are potential large igneous provinces identified on Mars and the moon. <gasps> oh, that's but, where all the Mars and moon life went. <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> they all got eaten by volcanoes. They
1: all got... That's the <laughs> ma- one big old mass extinction for the
0: whole thing. So volcanoes can range from tiny little vents that just ooze lava to big explosions to big mountains to super eruptions to volcanic regions that for an entire time period like an epoch Mm -hmm. of volcanic activity in an area there is this like i said at the beginning this is a long discussion there's so much to talk about all of this there's so much more detail uh we always say we can talk more about particular topics we're done with the geology portion <laughs> for this particular episode. If you want to hear more about any of the things we've discussed so far, always please let us know. Now, in the second part of the discussion, we are going to move into discussing volcanoes and their relationship with life. Uh, often not a great relationship.
1: <laughs> it's one-sided,
0: some uh, would say. Some Some would say it is a, commensalistic at best. <laughs> More about that after the break. When we think about the relationships between volcanoes and living things, I think the most obvious first thing that comes to mind is that volcanoes are dangerous. Yeah. The relationship is that living things are harmed and killed by them.
1: Well, like the comparison you made earlier on, uh, it, I my brain typically thinks of them the same way as our relationship with hurricanes or yeah, tornadoes. It's a natural disaster. Yes.
0: Which uh, offers us a good opportunity to talk about a subject we've glanced past so far, uh, and that is if you go to a website or a book about volcanoes, there will have a section called Volcanic Hazards. Yep. Volcanoes are fascinating for their diversity of harmful things. <laughs> like a tsunami is one of those. Okay, okay, a tsunami that can cause a bunch of things. But it's yeah, it's water. Yeah. Water comes in and, it, and it's dangerous for the reasons that a lot of water is dangerous. Volcanoes are arsenals of dangerous materials. Right off the bat, lava. It's hot. Very hot. Don't go near it. Get used to it. Get used to it. Lava flows, of course, can be dangerous. They can cause fires. They can damage uh, nearby materials, nearby plant life, you know, structures, mm-hmm. if there are people living there. Volcanoes also produce gases uh, you, during an eruption, but also, you know, little vents mm-hmm. off a volcano can produce sulfurous gases, carbon dioxide, things that can potentially be toxic, Gases and other minerals and materials can end up getting into water supplies or soils and contaminating them and being sources of uh, disease or, or just deadly to things that live there. Volcanoes are often associated with earthquakes because it's... Uh, both the movement of magma underground can cause tremors. But yeah, if it's an explosion. Yeah. Earthquakes and thus can also be associated with landslides. Avalanches, mm-hmm. a lot of volcanoes. Yeah, you know, like Mount Rainier is a snow-capped volcano. Avalanches can happen, mudslides, lahars, which are a particular kind of la- mudslide typically associated with volcanoes that tend to be water mixed with rock fragments.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. So it's yeah, like yeah. a stew. Yeah, I was about to say it, it's it's uh, uh, runny gravel. Yes,
0: instead of saturated earth. Yeah, it's not just. The mud. There's more chunky stuff in mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. and then of course there's the tephra of volcanoes. Tephra is the solid material that can include big chunks of rock, like fly through the air and be just be a harmful flying chunk of rock. A projectile. Sometimes you can get what are called volcanic bombs, which is so sometimes a, a volcano erupts and just a chunk of rock goes flying. Several, many chunks of rock, but. You can also have globs of lava that solidify on the way. Right. So that they are partially cooled before they land. Yeah, they've got a shell of, of cooled... Yep. Or even most of the thing is cooled. Yeah. And it's just... And those are really cool, dangerous, but really cool because they'll form this sort of almond shape. Because <laughs> oh. it's kind of like a lava raindrop. Yeah. That solidifies. And the, the
1: air movement... Uh, it's moving through the air, causes it to take that shape.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> the most common type of tephra, and arguably the worst hazard of a volcano, is ash. Yeah. Volcanic ash is all the tiny little fragments, they cool very quickly. Uh, it's very common for ash, it, it's easy to think of ash as just smoke. Yes. Uh, and indeed, Hollywood often thinks of ash as just smoke, which is why you have movies where people are running through ash clouds or flying their planes through ash clouds. But ash is a bajillion tiny pieces of rock. Yeah. Tiny shards of volcanic glass. Ash can be extremely dangerous because it's it can be harmful or even deadly to breathe in. It can spread very, very far. Uh, Ash clouds can spread for hundreds of kilometers or even more in a really big eruption. They can contaminate environments. Ash can block sunlight and interfere with atmospheric processes. And another thing that I learned, I remember when I learned about this, I had never thought about this before, but a volcanologist at the university pointed out that if you're close enough to a volcano, Ash can build up so much that it collapses buildings.
1: Yeah, well, it's like like snow and like, ice. Like
0: snow, absolutely.
1: It, it's. It, I think so often it's easy for us to underestimate the ash because when we think of ash, we think of like campfire ash.
0: Yeah, like, well, like little little particles floating around. Well, and like you know, because ash is a physical thing,
1: but when you touch it, it just it's powder. Yeah, it's, it's only held together by the fact that it's suspended in air. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is the particulate, like, just the bare minimist of carbon that's still holding a shape, uh, but all the solidity has been burned away. Uh, That's not what this is. This isn't, you didn't burn rock and, and produce rock ash. Right. This is the stuff that is small enough to stay in the air longer, but it's still
0: the same, it still came from the earth. Yeah. There's no wood down there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is why uh, big eruptions of volcanoes can often uh, shut down or interfere with air travel. Absolutely. Because you do not want ash getting into your plane, your jets, your engines, or anything like that.
1: Well, it it makes me... will
0: tear it up. It makes me
1: think about getting too much dust or
0: too much, you know, like sand or something
1: into a computer Mm -hmm. or into, you know, the systems of your car it can do damage because
0: it is physical. And it, it's glass. And this is, in this case, it is... I mean, sand is also... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this is always why I always thought it was very funny. Uh, here's a little nerd tangent. Way back in Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire, mm-hmm. there is a route through the desert. And you can't travel through the desert route because there's sandstorms. You need the special goggles. And until you get the goggles, you can't go through the sandstormy desert. But right after the desert, there is a route of that is constantly having ash rain down on it from the nearby volcano, and you can walk across that no problem.
1: Yeah, just you know,
0: like <laughs> put your shirt over your mouth or something. Yeah, you'll you be know. fine. And it's just you know, uh, what is very funny because I know that's a very common way to think. Yeah, it's just it's like snowfall. Yeah, but it's not.
1: We well, it, I feel like it, in a lot of people's minds, it's like, well, you mean. It's not fun to breathe in campfire smoke, but yeah, (laughs) you'll be, it's, it's uncomfortable.
0: Uh, This is, this, this'll, can seriously damage your lungs if you breathe in too much. Speaking of tephra, and speaking of the worst hazards of volcanoes, the hazard that I think I probably most often see called the most dangerous hazard of volcanoes are pyroclastic flows. That's what I thought. Uh, Also, I've seen them called pyroclastic density currents. Ooh, a pyroclastic flow is essentially an avalanche, but made of ash and rock and superheated gas that cascades down the side of a mountain.
1: Yeah, it's it's the the avalanche really does capture it because like I'm always blown away when I see videos of snow avalanches. Just it seems like it should just go <laughs> right, but it has this force and this flow behind it that's truly impressive that's what it looks like whenever i've seen things of pyroclastic flows just it's it's more insubstantial because it's made out of a bunch of weird stuff yeah
0: instead of snow i know what snow is pyroclastic flows like avalanches are shockingly fast extremely dangerous but whereas an avalanche is dangerous because it'll bury you yes or crush you i assume an avalanche has a lot of force A pyroclastic flow can do those things, but also is superheated volcanic material. So, like, you won't get buried in a pyroclastic flow. That's not what's going to kill you in a pyroclastic... (laughs) Like, (laughs) again, and and I'm being flippant, but again, pyroclastic flows have absolutely been the cause of death for people living near volcanic eruptions. But, uh, yes, a pyroclastic flow does not... is not fatal because of burial yes it is fatal because it is made of things that will are are extremely harmful yeah very high temperatures full of ash and rock and shards and stuff like that
1: well it makes me think of things i've heard about with tsunamis that you know the initial wave impact is obviously incredibly forceful and dangerous but then like once it impacts the water will continue to flow inland And can flow for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the water, the current itself is not necessarily the dangerous thing, but it's all the stuff. All the debris that has now been picked up by the water and is carrying shards of glass and chunks of wood and pieces of cars Mm -hmm. that you could get caught up and incredibly injured by. It makes me think of this, uh, uh, in this case, where it's just shrapnel flowing down the mountainside that is also... It doesn't look hot cuz it's not glowing red like lava. It looks is. like clouds. It looks like clouds. It looks like smoke. But it is insanely hot. Like you even if you even if you were invulnerable to penetration, you know, if you had bulletproof skin,
0: right, your Luke cage, you would still be burned to death. Right. And that comparison brings me to another one of the hazards, tsunamis. Mm-hmm. Tsunamis can be caused or volcano. Tsunamis are caused by di- displacement of water. So a shockwave from a volcanic eruption can create a tsunami. A pyroclastic flow flowing into the water can cause a tsunami. Oh, wow. I hadn't even thought of that. If the mountain collapses and a bunch of that material falls into water, that can cause a tsunami. So a disturbance to the water creates a wave, not a wave like on the surface, but a shockwave kind of wave through the water, through the ocean or a big lake. The same way that an earthquake, the reason an earthquake underwater causes a tsunami is because the land moves. Yeah. And that sudden movement causes a wave of water movement. So tsunamis for uh, volcanoes near water. So all of these are potential dangers of a volcano. Volcanoes are, there's just a list of things to look out for. These are hazards not only to people. All of these things are on record, having caused major problems for human civilizations in volcanic eruptions, but also for local environments. Yeah, right. But a lot of volcanoes have ecosystems nearby. We'll talk more about that in a second. <laughs> but yeah, all of these are potential hazards.
1: Yeah, there, there's nothing about the inside of our planet that is favorable. <laughs> that is hospitable to the things that live on. And this said is the inside planet. coming out.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are also longer term impacts. So I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but Krakatoa, Pinatubo, Mount Agung, these are three eruptions, 1883, 1991, and 1963, respectively, that are famous for the fact that they released so much ash and smoke and dust into the air that reduced sunlight enough to lower global temperatures for uh, one to three years. Yeah. After their eruption, usually this is a degree, half a degree of temperature shift, but measurable. Krakatoa went off, Pinatubo went off, and the world was a little bit colder for a few years. Which
1: isn't going to, like, wipe out ecosystems, but, like, if you're a particularly specialized orchid or something, mm-hmm. that, could be, that could be enough to really give your species a rough time during that, that span.
0: Well, and even before that, in 1815, there was famously Mount Tambora, which was followed by a a year that is historically called the year without a summer. Oh,
1: right. I have heard that.
0: In North America, I think it was North America and Europe in particular, where this was a problem, where summer temperatures just didn't get very high. And I think, I I don't, this is off the top of my head, but I think there were reported like agricultural issues Mm -hmm. associated with this because, yeah, you get decreased solar input enough to cause a slight temperature reduction
1: yeah which which makes complete sense it's i I did not know that they uh had global effects like i i knew that they would have regional effects for a time but the fact that it produced enough and then that was then spread enough Mm -hmm. uh, quickly enough to affect the whole world is impressive scary but impressive
0: yeah now that is not to say that the impacts of volcanoes are entirely negative. They aren't. Like we said earlier, volcanoes are an important source of new crust. They are an important source of carbon cycling. But in the sort of more tangible and beneficial sense, volcanic minerals often end up creating particularly fertile soils. They contribute nutrients to soil that can make them really nutritious, really rich, for plant growth, uh, even potentially for human, for farming and crops. Mm-hmm. Geothermal heat produced by volcanoes is useful not only for us, right? Geothermal heating uh, as a power source is a thing in human society, but also for certain organisms living near volcanoes. There are organisms that prefer the heat. I found one report. I did not go into any detail on this. This was an article uh, on the on the internet, so I don't have like a reference for this. But it cited iguanas in Fernandina Island in the Galapagos laying their eggs in the warm ash left by the volcano. Oh, that's cool! And it insulates and keeps the eggs warm. Nice. Uh, also, volcanoes produce construction equipment or materials for us humans to build stuff with, <laughs> like basalts and granites and stuff. So, with all this in mind, the impacts volcanoes have on the environment. And the commonness of volcanoes on the topic of life and volcanoes, despite all the hazards, a lot of organisms live near volcanoes. Mm -hmm. Volcanic habitats are extremely common. So there is a tight correlation. A lot of organisms are in danger from these hazards because they live nearby. Probably the most obvious volcanic habitat is islands. Yes. Volcanoes, volcanoes create islands. Hawaii is all volcanoes, and it is inhabited by a bunch of ecosystems. Volcanoes can also create caves and tubes and tunnels. Uh, The piping systems of the volcanoes, you can get lava tubes, which are very cool, both on land and underwater. That can create habitats. I think we talked in the caves episode, episode 112, about organisms living in volcano caves. Yeah. And there are cases, I know in Hawaii, there are cases where volcanic, uh, cooled volcanic uh, rock in the water is used as habitats by sharks and other ocean organisms or coral grows on it. So volcanoes can create habitats. There are also examples of, uh, uh, organisms that are specialized for volcanic habitats. Yes. So for example, uh, Bodies of water, geothermal volcanic bodies of water, are often inhabited by microbes and invertebrates that can handle the conditions where not a lot of other things can. So you get these superheated bodies of water or these toxic bodies of water. Another example that I don't have a reference for, but I read about on the internet, was flamingos in Lake Natron in Tanzania. Will's nodding. Maybe he's heard about this. Yeah, I
1: have heard about these.
0: This is a population of flamingos that live in a hot, toxic lake, because they can handle it. Mm-hmm. And their predators can't.
1: Yeah, I, the reason I I, I... I don't remember if this was the first time I learned about it, but there was a documentary, and it was talking about these flamingos, and it showed, I think it was a baboon, uh, that was considering and, like, I think made an attempt. <laughs> but it was talking about, it's like, the baboon has to be very quick, because the longer it spins in the water, it is taking physical damage. Yeah. <laughs> its arms and legs will be potentially scarred if it's not quick enough
0: in trying to get to these flamingos. (laughs) So there is life that lives and even thrives near volcanoes. Another thing that I read about is that the landscape of Kilauea, so the big Hawaii volcano, is made up of lava flows, right? Cooled lava flows. But that there are, every now and then there will be patches of higher elevation land, So when the lava, when new lava comes out, it flows around (sighs) these little elevated patches. And so you get little ecosystems, little islands on the island that Uh. form and are never inundated by lava because they're just high enough elevation that there's lower points near them. The lava flows around them. That's so cool. Yeah. Until there's too much lava and then they are destroyed.
1: Unlike water. The old lava doesn't get out of the way. Right.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
1: So it will eventually get
0: there, but for now. Yeah. (laughs) So cool. Yeah, these islands among lava, which is why you can get, like, a little tree growing on, you know, you'll see pictures every now and then or videos of lava flowing around a little tree (laughs) that's growing out of the volcanic soil of of Kilauea. it's it's not allowing it to stand out of respect. <laughs> <laughs> it's waiting someday. Not this lava flow, but maybe the next one. Not today. <laughs> you better call those eagles. <laughs> now, hand in hand with the con with the the question of how organisms thrive in sort of the beneficial environments around volcanoes, there is the, I think, much more fascinating and probably much more studied question of how organisms deal with what happens when the volcano erupts. Mm -hmm. There is a field of study. It's a narrow field called volcano ecology, which is how do ecosystems deal with volcanoes? It is a subset of what is called disturbance ecology. Right, right, right. Right. Ecosystems often are disturbed. Disturbances can be tropical storms. They can be fire. They can be uh, tsunamis. Ecosystems have been studied for a long time in the in the context of how do you handle your ecosystem basically being destroyed every now and then. In the case of volcanoes, this is easier to study than you'd think because we get a lot of case studies. Yes, <laughs> uh, I found while I was reading around, uh, looking through research, I found examples of Pinatubo, Mount St. Helens, and Paricutin in Mexico of where. Scientists were able to study the ecosystem before and after (laughs) eruptions and see what happened. It's the really beneficial thing about them being common. Right. We get to research them. (laughs) Now, when you study ecosystem reaction to volcanic eruptions, you find uh, first and foremost that there's a lot of habitat destruction, but interesting patterns emerge in survival and recovery of these ecosystems.
1: This was my favorite part of the Volcanoes episode with Bill Nye, is they had a section at the end talking about people going and studying in islands after lava flow.
0: As far as, you know, there haven't been a lot of case studies, but it seems, so usually a volcanic eruption will not completely wipe out an ecosystem. Uh, Obviously there are going to be exceptions. Like we said, sometimes an island is destroyed, (laughs) (laughs) and if there's no island left, then yeah, that ecosystem is gone now. Yes. But if you look at something like Pinatubo or Mount St. Helens or Paricutin which did not destroy their environment, you get survival. Yeah, the lava doesn't flow evenly in all directions. There will be species that survive and pop right back up afterwards. And usually like you're saying, this is attributed to refugia, places of safety within the danger zone of the volcano. One of the most famous cases of this is Mount St. Helens. After it erupted in 1980, one of the animals that researchers found did surprisingly well afterwards were pocket gophers. Because if you live underground, you might very well be sheltered from the effects of the volcanic eruption above you. On the other hand, large animals tend to have a really hard time after volcanic eruptions. The eruption of Mount St. Helens is generally thought, based on what little I read to have killed all of the large animals within the eruption zone. Yeah. If you were far enough away, you could have just escaped. You run. But if you were close, you didn't make it. Yeah. Because large animals have a hard time finding shelters. But if you're underground or in a lake or in a fissure or a crack in the ground, those are places that are potentially sheltered from volcanoes. So this means that While it's not likely the case that any animals or plants or anything are adapted to survive volcanoes specifically, (laughs) yes, there are aspects of lifestyle that can lead one species to being more likely to survive a volcanic eruption.
1: And and, uh, I can also see that small life is more numerous. So like, you may be like, well, but what are the odds that you're going to be in the right spot? At the right
0: time. If you're an insect, pretty good. Yep. (laughs) So if you are a burrower, being underground can shelter you from a lot of the effects. One paper that I read noted that being nocturnal or diurnal might be helpful depending on what time of day the volcano erupts. Huh. Because if it erupts during the day and all the worst effects happen during the day, if you were in your burrow sleeping... You might have a higher chance of being protected from those effects.
1: Boy, that'd be a a rough thing to wake up to.
0: Right? (laughs) An apocalyptic wasteland. (laughs) Another thing that that same paper brought up is that some animals have different uh, habits in different life stages. So like amphibians Mm and insects often will have aquatic larvae and terrestrial adults, which means that if a disaster happens that more dramatically affects the water or the land, you have a higher chance of surviving yeah. as a species. Because if the water is, you know, toxified and everything dies, but the land is okay, all the adults are still around yeah. and can have more babies. Because
1: I, even if you break down to very rough, you know, this is not how it actually breaks down, but 50-50, you know, half of you are in the water, half of you are on land. If 50% of you gets knocked out, that's still 50% left around.
0: And what's left are either adults that can make more babies or babies that can make more adults. Exactly. (laughs) And that's
1: better than if you're like a fish that if the water gets messed up, then you are messed up completely.
0: So you tend to get quite a bit of a surprising amount of survival a lot of the time. Not to mention that bigger animals or flying animals have a good chance of just getting away. Yes. Yes. And then living okay. elsewhere without having to uh, worry about it. And then after the survival, there is the question of recovery. The volcanic destroyed landscape will be repopulated and recolonized by the ecosystem eventually. Mm-hmm. And again, on on the one hand, there is you know it's a it's a blasted landscape and the trees are destroyed and burned down and there's ash everywhere. So that can be a very difficult landscape to go back to but again certain species seem to do really well in those conditions on the one hand there's limited resources so if all the plants are destroyed right your, your deer are not going to come back in uh, I did see one brief mention in one of the papers I read that after Mount St. Helens ant colonies survived okay because <laughs> ants yep but had few resources and so they struggled afterwards
1: oh yeah okay
0: on the other hand, we talked in a news not too long ago about the Pinatubo volcano mouse. Yeah. This was, a research went out, because the Pinatubo erupted, and researchers said, oh no, there was a highly endangered mouse species on that mountain. Is it extinct now? And they went there, and they found that not only was were they not extinct, but they were the most common small mammal on the mountain. Because they, for whatever reason, they thrived in that post-disturbance environment. And some of the reasons you might thrive in a post-disturbance environment includes the fact that if you can handle the low resources, there's not a lot of predators, there's not a lot of parasites, there's not a lot of pathogens, all the dangers are gone.
1: Yeah, like, even if you're not being like, oh, this is the ideal situation for me, if you can do all right while everyone else is doing poorly, Mm -hmm. then
0: you're king of the mountain. There are also examples in plants. Where certain plants, oh, plants! If there's seeds underground, it's hard to destroy a seed to begin with. <laughs> so it's easy to imagine that, yeah, if you had a bunch of seeds underground, the plants are fine. Well, and because the seeds are fine,
1: plants are one of those examples. Like you know, you see plants that are poking their way up through, you know, asphalt and stuff, right? Because they're like, listen, my shoots made to push through <laughs> rocks and things. Yeah. So like, yeah, a plant's gonna grow up and not just bounce back but if the if the area that was covered by some lava is thin there's gonna all right pop here i
0: am that has actually been a deciding factor in certain plants if the seeds survive but your shoot is not strong enough to make it through all the ash then those plants can't come back Yep. at least not from their own seeds but other plants that do have shoots that can make it through you know 10 15 centimeters of ash break through the solidified surface those will regrow in place. Oh, I bet bamboo would be great at that. I have no idea. Because I, I, they have those pointed
1: shoots that are good at... Oh, yeah, maybe. ...pushing their way through. Like, that's why they have the whole bamboo torture of it growing through a person. <laughs> yep.
0: So some plants and animals can survive in the area. There was also that Mount St. Helens study found that the pocket gophers churning up the soil also helped plants to grow. Oh, uh, yeah. Because it reduced the ash... I found a number of different studies have found that survival of certain plants and animals is directly correlated with how much ash is on the ground. Makes sense. Because that's covering up a lot of your uh, functional space. Outside of that, you just have to recolonize from outside. Birds and things can fly back in. Plants can redisperse into the area. Disturbances like volcanoes often can open up the doors for invasive species. Because if there's not a lot of competition in this area and you do a good job... Invasive species can move in. That was one of the big worries on Pinatuba with the volcano mouse. And then one other thing that I read in one of these studies about the long-term effects is that arboreal animals, animals that live in trees, might be expected to have a harder time recovering, not just because the trees are destroyed, but even if they're not, if the trees are covered in ash... yeah then every time you move across a branch, you're kicking up a cloud of ash. Yeah. So the trees could potentially be toxic. Yes. Just covered in dangerous ash. So different lifestyles, different habits, different kinds of animals, different body sizes, different plant seed types can all be factors in how life survives and bounces back after a volcanic eruption.
1: Well, and I think one of the aspects that makes it so... Unique when we think about other stuff. Like if you think of a, a mudslide, like, like you said with tsunamis, it, that's a very one effect thing. Mm-hmm. Like we know what's happening here. Same with like a forest fire. You know, it. We know what's happening, and it's a very. It does this thing. But with volcanoes, it's there, there's so many nuances to like where you're living, how you're living, how the ashes falling, what kind you know, how thick it is, is. To where it, you can't just say, well, this type of life does well around volcanoes. Right. Because it, well, what kind of volcano? Yeah. What <laughs> kind of eruption? Yeah. It's all very different. So you get these unique scenarios. <laughs> I, I'd assume you could probably describe each volcano almost individually.
0: Yeah. And I, I've seen descriptions of that. Yeah. Uh, there was a website I was looking at that was talking about the, the the types of volcanoes yeah, and how there are the three types, but there's not. And how there was a book that, that identified 26 types of volcanoes. woo, And one of the comments they made is that arguably there are as many kinds of volcanoes as there are volcanoes. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. Each one is a unique circumstance to a degree.
1: Which absolutely makes sense. You know, that, that's the case with most things like this is no two hurricanes, yeah. you know, follow the exact same course with the exact same
0: amount of rainfall no two species are the same no two individuals yeah there's always that nuance that complicates things yes
1: here it's just (laughs)
0: when when there's that nuance it also affects the entire ecosystem around it (laughs) right (laughs) now uh this is a paleontology podcast and we talked about how we study volcanoes in the past uh we can study volcanoes and life in the past Obviously, island life in the past oftentimes is volcanic. Obviously, I talked about there are a lot of fossil sites with, you know, ash deposits or lava deposits occasionally. Generally speaking, volcanic material is not conducive to fossils. (laughs) You think about the classic way that fossils are formed. Fossils are an organism or part of an organism buried in sediment calmly, or perhaps even if not calmly, sometimes just quickly, uh, but it is buried and left there, and as the sediment becomes a layer of rock, the remains of the organism become fossilized. You're buried in mud, you're buried in sand, you're buried in lime mud at the bottom of the ocean.
1: Volcanoes seem a bit aggressive.
0: Well, you don't (laughs) get, you know, if you're buried in lava, (laughs) you don't survive long enough, you'd imagine to become a Fossil, Or if you are overcome by hot ash, one would imagine that instead of nicely encasing an organism and then fossilizing it, it will qu- quickly and horribly destroy an organism Yeah, and then just become more ash. But there are exceptions. There are a number of different ways that volcanic activity can produce fossils. So I'm going to talk about a bunch of them. In quick, we're just going to go through a bunch of different examples, but these are fascinating. Probably the most obvious way is ash. Ash accumulating in an ecosystem or in an environment can cover things, bury things, and preserve some form of remains. Probably the most famous example of this—it is not a paleontology example, but an archaeology example—is the city of Pompeii. Yes, Pompeii, city in Italy, was buried. During the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD, the entire city and nearby areas were buried in 4 to 6 meters, 13 to 20 feet of ash, which is thought to have pretty much instantaneously frozen everything in the city, including the people, and preserved the structures, preserved uh, evidence of the people, if not always the physical remains of the people. Yeah, the the
1: shape of the people. The shape
0: of the people, frozen in time under this rapid deposition of ash. Probably the most famous fossil example is the Ashfall fossil beds. Right there in the name. In Nebraska. This is a 12 million year old waterhole site that was also covered in ash. Now, this is a slightly different situation. Pompeii was instantly buried. Hmm. Ashfall was buried slowly. The volcano that produced the ash was in Idaho, about a thousand miles away. Oh. It was an eruption of the Yellowstone hotspot when it was farther to the west.
1: I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. Cool. Callback. Yeah, see, it's all coming together. This uh, eruption created dense ash fall, right, a rain of ash, over this site that gradually buried this ecosystem and the ash is so fine that it preserves a lot of really fine detail so you get a lot of animals preserved in three dimensions even soft bones uh, or soft tissues and small bones the kinds of things that don't often preserve very well Uh, this site is famous for its teleoceros rhinos Mm -hmm. as we mentioned in episode 129 whereas pompeii was a horrible rapid burial and devastation of a city this was a horrible and slow burial <laughs> of an ecosystem. Uh, one site that I came across said, Every single skeleton has the pathologic growths on its bones that modern animals exhibit if they die of lung failure caused by oxygen deprivation. Oh. This site was choked by a slow accumulation of ash. Was
1: suffocated
0: to that death. That then preserved the body's... That were left behind as these beautiful fossils.
1: And I've seen pictures of ash fall mm-hmm. and how densely packed piles those skeletons are to each other. So this is just like, you'd just be watching an ecosystem just choke mm-hmm. and one by one <laughs> fall. And that's a lot.
0: <sighs> uh, my, my my friend and colleague, Will, has often said, the worse the tragedy, the better the fossils site. Yep! <laughs> <laughs> uh this one's for Allie. Uh Florissant fossil beds are a late Eocene early Oligocene lake deposit in Colorado, also preserved in ash mixed with other sediments, famous for lots of really good plant fossils. There are a lot of other sites with ash sediments that preserve fossil remains, probably per- perhaps the most famous fossil site preserved uh, in ash, although it's I don't think it's as famous for being preserved in ash. Is the Laetoli site in Africa that is the famous hominin footprints site? Right. Yes. Those footprints are preserved in ash. I forgot that they were walking across an ashy landscape. Uh, not only the hominin footprints, but other animal footprints, and even like raindrops. Like ash is really good at preserving fine details.
1: Well, and especially because uh, when you're making the comparison between Pompeii and ashfall, like Pompeii was near the mountain. Yes. Uh, like it was near the volcano, so they got caught in the flow. It was is my understanding and knowledge of yeah, it. Yeah, I believe so. Like they were caught in the direct flow of ash. Whilst with ashfall, they were a number of miles away Do oh, yeah. So the ash that made it there was not the large particulate, it was the very fine Particularly that could be carried in the yeah. air farther distance.
0: This is like being buried in snow. Mm-hmm. If the snow could kill you. Yes, if the snow was <laughs> never going to melt. <laughs> uh, it had, it had, the snow had already melted <laughs> and then reformed. The eternal winter. Now, uh, ash, I think, is a pretty obvious example. Yeah, ashes basically functions just like other sediments yeah. and can bury things. It's just particulating from directly above. But the more direct products of a volcano, right lava and superheated clouds and pyroclastic flows and stuff are much less conducive to preserving things within them because that's not how that works not as cooperative and yet here are a few examples that i came across a 2012 study identified an ignimbrite deposit Nice. Uh, Ignimbrite is the name for a pyroclastic flow deposit. I like that. So this is the layer of rock formed from a pyroclastic flow. In Turkey, nine million years old, that contained the skull of a rhinoceros. Ceratotherium, the bones of the skull, showed heat damage. I remember this one. They were baked. This is a rhino that was overtaken by a pyroclastic flow, and the skull withstood the heat long enough for it to cool down and then was preserved inside the pyroclastic flow.
1: Rhino skull tough.
0: There was another study in 2014 in Italy, a late Pleistocene site, very similar situation. Pyroclastic flow deposit, a vulture skull, including soft tissue. Wow. Which makes them suspect that in that case, it wasn't very hot, that this would have been a cool pyroclastic flow, effectively. Because otherwise, you absolutely should not have had soft tissue still in there. Yeah, it should char that almost instantly. Right. So this was a cold, and I'm air quotes, <laughs> cold pyroclastic flow. Uh Cold enough that a vulture made it. Uh Well, a vulture's <laughs> head made it. <laughs> Some gooey bits on the head. So you it. can get fossils in pyroclastic deposits. And then there is the famous case... Uh, the 1951 study that found the Blue Lake Rhino. Rhinos are very common, apparently, in fossil sites uh, that are volcanic <laughs> fossil sites.
1: I'm just not picturing, like, you know, the bunch of people that st- go out onto their porch when a tornado comes by.
0: <laughs> Those are <were> the rhinos. <laughs> that rhinos are just like, look at that mountain. <laughs> the deer are running and everyone the vultures are trying to get away and they're like, run! And the, volcanoes, uh, the, the rhinos are like, oh, this is going to be cool. Yeah. Honey, <laughs> get the camera.
1: <laughs> you all are a bunch of weenies. Uh,
0: honestly, it probably has to do with them just being big. Yeah. Right. A rhino skull is much more likely to survive in a heated ash deposit. (laughs) Than most things. Than most things. Yeah, they're just big, and so they they preserve. Speaking of which, the Blue Lake Rhino in Washington State is a mold. So that is the sort of, uh, like you were saying with Pompeii, the shape Mm -hmm. of a rhino body, uh, diceratherium, inside a lava flow.
1: Yes. I remember there was an example where it was... The, the cavity.
0: <laughs> yes, there is a rhino-shaped hole inside this lava flow. This is thought to have happened when lava... the the, the It may have been, the, the way that they hypothesize, is that the body was possibly in a shallow lake, mm-hmm. and the lava flowed into the lake, and remained lava long enough to surround the body, but cooled quickly enough that it didn't just destroy the body.
1: Yeah, that it wasn't... Hot lava on land flowing over a body and then
0: cooling over time. hit water and cooled around this body. Which is... Rhino fossil in, inside a lava flow.
1: In actual lava, not the pyroclastic flow, not ashfall.
0: Lava. Actual lava preserved the shape of a rhino. (laughs) I have heard that this can happen with, like, logs and stuff. That's what I was thinking.
1: Is that we'll find
0: tubes
1: where a log got surrounded by lava
0: but did not turn to ash quick enough and that might have happened i didn't find an example of that i didn't go digging a lot this episode is seven hours (laughs) long so i didn't go you know (laughs) digging too much but yeah i've heard of that happening in the modern time that you can find like logs that don't fully burn away before the lava cools around them yeah kind of thing Uh, i mentioned the (laughs) latoli footprints which are footprints in ash There are also cases of footprints being preserved in lava. Not that you walked on the lava, but uh, I I found, well, I found one example of a case in New Mexico where footprints were filled with ash Mm -hmm. and the ash made casts, right? It, It was molded to the shape and created an internal cast of the footprint, There is at least one site that I've seen reported from Idaho, Pleistocene horse tracks that were filled with lava. So a horse walked across a landscape, left footprints, and then a lava flow filled in the footprints so that you have this layer of lava rock. And on the underside of the layer are little... Footprints. Like sort the, of the, the negative of the footprint. It's the forbidden
1: plaster mold. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I found another one of a report from the Cretaceous of South Korea. Sauropod tracks in magma. And here's how this is thought to have happened. Sauropods walked across a landscape, left footprints in a lower layer. Mm-hmm. Later, an upper layer of sand or other sediment covered that... So the footprints were filled in by the layer on top. Mm -hmm. Then a magma body intruded between the layers to create a sill. This often happens. This is an intrusive, uh, uh, igneous body. It flowed through layers underground and then solidified. This intruded between the layers and flowed around... The footprints, so that underneath the upper layer replicated the original shape of the footprints. <laughs> so sediment filled in the footprints and created internal casts, and then magma flowed around those and created natural replicas of the original dinosaur footprints.
1: So, so no firewalking sauropods. They
0: were they were, they were not fire walking. Wow. But they did get replicas of... I want my footprints replicated in magma. Right? That's right? gotta that'd be, be something. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> Reproduce. <laughs> Don't get that at the zoo. <laughs> I imagine that that's like if you go to Hawaii. You know when you go to a zoo and they're like, do you want some penguin art? mm mm-hmm, Right? Mm-hmm. We'll have a penguin walk in paint and then walk over... I they, they I would put I would make that a tourist thing in Hawaii. Yes, it's like you want me to make your footprints out of lava.
1: <laughs> Give me a little while. <laughs>
0: oh, so you can get fossils in weird. There, it's always cool. What like there's there is no such thing as a boring fossil in igneous rock. That,
1: yeah, that's exactly what I was about <laughs> to say. Is like we've talked about a lot of notable fossilization processes and examples to where it's like here's how we got this ridiculously good fossil and it's and plenty of them are cool and and you know very interesting in their details but like all of these fossils are not only extreme because it involves a volcano mm-hmm. but also elaborate yeah so many of them it's like
0: <laughs> here's a how story.
1: it was allowed to happen <laughs>
0: Uh, There is one other category that I want to mention, and that is that igneous rocks, after cooling, particularly uh, in ocean sediments, can become home to microbes that live in the pores and stuff, which can leave trace fossils. Oh. Pitting and scoring in little places where they've altered the rock, chemical signatures, biomarkers. So you can get microfossils in volcanic rocks, you know, that became a home to organisms long after. In fact, uh, some of the oldest purported evidence of life comes from examples like that.
1: That makes sense. Huh,
0: yeah. I I wish we could talk about this. There's so many, There's, there's a ton of cool examples, but suffice it to say, life manages around volcanoes, and even fossils manage around volcanoes. Now, we've talked about Living and volcanoes. We've talked about volcanoes and fossils. There is one more topic that I want to make sure we get to in this episode before we uh, get to the end. And that is... uh, This is is an area that I'm going to slightly misleadingly name. Volcanoes and Extinction. The
1: opposite of living around volcanoes. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Much discussion surrounds the topic of how volcanoes relate to extinctions. Volcanoes are extremely damaging. They can be extremely uh, harmful to ecosystems. And so naturally there is the expectation that particularly harmful, particularly devastating volcanoes might have enormous impacts negatively on life on Earth. There are two types of volcanic activity that tend to come up in discussions of volcanoes and past extinction. The first is Super Volcanoes. The second is Large Igneous Provinces. We will get to that in a moment. Super Volcanoes get a lot of hype. Whenever It, it, it seems like every time Super Volcanoes comes up, they're, like people will say, oh, if Yellowstone goes off, it's the end for us. And they're like um, uh, uh, 2012, the movie, yep. treated the Super Volcano like it destroyed North America. That's, that's
1: what it, it always is portrayed as when I see things discuss it in, a, in a, an apocalyptic sense. Is that, like, if Yellowstone goes off again, like, the western half of North America is just going to be a crater. Right.
0: Which, of course, is not true. No, that's
1: that's insanity to think of a <laughs> volcano that large.
0: Now, super volcanic eruptions absolutely have devastating impacts on their ecosystems. Ashfall is the result of a supervolcanic volcanic eruption very far away mm-hmm. from where the fossil site is. But... Interestingly enough, as far as I'm aware, there is no definite link between any super volcanic eruptions of the past and extinctions. Yeah. We have evidence of three prior Yellowstone eruptions, two of which were technically super eruptions, and none of them seem to be linked to extinction events. Yeah. It's
1: just, it's too instantaneous. It, it When we have extinctions, that needs to be a... a something that is causing widespread and long-term, oftentimes true, major events.
0: The idea with it, you know, I think a lot of people, we've talked about this in Extinction episodes, that it's like, yeah, the asteroid at the end of the Cretaceous didn't just land on all the dinosaurs. Exactly. It created conditions that lasted a very long time that were harmful. And a supervolcano absolutely can create long-lasting conditions, right? Deposits of ash and climatic changes like we've discussed with volcanoes. But it really, I I think that it might not even be that it's too instantaneous, but paradoxically, it's too small.
1: Yeah, it's not as big as we think it is.
0: It's big, and surely it has very devastating impacts, but not enough to make, you know, an evolutionary shift. Yeah. Even though they are pretty extreme,
1: well, it's, and what I meant by it's not big enough is on the scale of millions of years, mm-hmm. or you know, or even just million years, it's not going to cause enough of a blip, right, to really change things into a massive extinction level.
0: Now, aside from Yellowstone, the number one supervolcano that gets talked about in terms of how did this change the course of evolutionary history is Toba. Mm -hmm. Lake Toba, I mentioned earlier, is a flooded caldera in Sumatra, the result of a super eruption that happened 74,000 years ago. Toba has erupted a number of times. Two million years ago, 840,000, 500,000, and the biggest one was the latest one. 74,000 years ago, estimated to have produced over 8,000 cubic kilometers of tephra. Okay. Ash has been found at sites thousands of kilometers away. This volcano is often discussed in relation to two things, uh, both of which seem to have gained popularity in the 90s. The suggestion that it kicked off a volcanic winter, that just devastated climate for several years, that it may have kicked off a millennium of colder, drier climates around the globe. Uh, this, uh, to support this hypothesis, researchers in the past have pointed to changes in vegetation and temperature studies that do indicate climatic effects. But the more famous thing that Toba is supposed to have caused is a bottleneck in early human populations. Yeah. This is the super eruption that you'll often hear say, yeah, this volcano went off and humans almost went extinct because of it. Uh, The common number uh, that is cited is that it reduced human populations to less than 10,000 individuals. And this is related to genetic evidence. So pointing uh, people who proposed this pointed at genetic evidence that showed dramatically lowered human populations around the time of the Toba eruption. But as time has gone on, other studies have challenged both of these suggestions. Various studies have found effect, evidence of short-term effects on temperature and habitats and climate, but not long-term effects. Uh, Some studies have found that earlier models have overestimated their uh, sulfuric gas predictions, which leads them to overestimate the volcanic winter effect. And more recent studies have found little or no impact on human populations. Genetic studies also don't seem to show a clear bottleneck as it was previously thought. Some very recent finds have looked at African archaeological sites that exist before the eruption, include an ash layer and then continue (laughs) after the eruption that don't seem to have been largely impacted by this eruption Uh, other sites have found similar things with vegetation a lot of that evidence originally suggested to support this hasn't held up over time yeah the genetic link doesn't quite seem to be there the fossil the archaeological sites and fossil sites don't quite seem to show the dramatic impacts that we expect Toba absolutely had dramatic effects and we see short term impacts in the record of that area, but we don't see that quite the apocalyptic scenario that has often been described.
1: Yeah. Which makes sense, uh, like we were saying earlier about that volcanoes are a complicated Mm -hmm. interaction between eruption and environment. Uh, So you, you can't just simply say, you know, A to B, what was the effect? So it makes sense that there, the that data could get muddied and muddled very easily uh, initially or, or just depending on how you're, you know, what parts of it you're looking at since there is so many factors going into it. Yeah.
0: This is one of those that has become a very popular story. Mm-hmm. And so it still gets repeated, but a lot of recent studies have called these things into question that Toba, certainly important, but probably didn't almost kill all humans. Yeah and probably, maybe did not invoke a global nuclear winter or volcanic winter quite as dramatically as it has been proposed in the past. Of course, this is still an active question of research, so there will probably be more studies on it in the future that uncover more things. Mm -hmm. And then finally, uh, and for people who are long-term listeners of the podcast, this may in fact be the part you've been waiting for. (laughs) Let's bring it back to large, igneous, provinces. As I mentioned before, large igneous provinces are the result of massive long-term amounts of volcanic activity. And they are very commonly linked to major events and mass extinctions in the history of the world. We have done episodes on all of the big five mass extinctions. We've done episodes on other events. And in almost all of them, we mention large igneous province volcanism. Most of the Big Five mass extinctions have been linked to this. Uh, the Snowball Earth periods, which we discussed in episode 124, have been suggested to be linked to large igneous provinces. The Cambrian Explosion, I'm pretty sure, has been proposed to have a link to large igneous provinces. A recent study, just I think a couple months ago, linked to the Carnian Pluvial episode of the late Triassic, which was a major shift in humidity and temperature and uh, dinosaurs and plants. L- proposed a link between that and the wrangelia large igneous province in alaska and canada huh. it just keeps coming up that these are somehow related to major changes in evolutionary and extinction patterns on earth's history and we've talked about this a little bit we talked about this in episode five we talked about this in episode 45 this isn't unreasonable when you think about the impacts that these kind of volcanic activity can have. Obviously there's the short term stuff, right? There's all the you know the lava and the ash and the pyroclastic stuff and all that. But in the long term, massive amounts of volcanic activity can produce massive amounts of dust and opaque gases like the sulfur dioxide, which can lead to cooling temperatures. Massive amounts of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, which can induce warming climates. Massive amounts of things like hydrochloric acid and hydrofluoric acid, which can pollute environments and cause acid rain. Altogether, these impacts can interrupt plants and animals, oceans and fresh waters. They can produce cascading effects. So if it gets warm enough, you can also release things like methane stores, which are more greenhouse. It's Very easy to understand how a few million years of volcanic activity can release enough volcanic product into the environment and into the atmosphere to cause major changes.
1: Absolutely. Like you're, (laughs) I was almost going to say you're introducing foreign materials. Uh, Sort of. (laughs) You know, and it's, and it's, it's about as not foreign as it can be. Except if you've only ever lived on the surface.
0: Right, as most of us have. (laughs) Uh, Well, the impacts are, are very similar to what we discussed with major asteroid impacts. Yes. It's like, yeah, all the same stuff that goes wrong there in the long term can potentially go wrong with massive amounts of volcanic activity.
1: Except instead of there being one instantaneous event, it is an ongoing process. Yes.
0: Now, there is much discussion over the exact link between this kind of volcanic activity and major crises in Earth history. There are a few cases where it is brought up pretty confidently, like the Permian extinction. Uh, There are other cases where it go kind of back and forth as to how impactful it was, like the Cretaceous mass extinction. But it cannot be denied (laughs) that large igneous provinces, when dated, seem to conspicuously line up with major extinctions in Earth history. The End Devonian mass extinction, 360 million years ago, dates to the same time as the Villoy Traps. The End Permian matches the Siberian Traps. The End Triassic matches the Central Atlantic Magmatic Province. The End Cretaceous matches the Deccan Traps. That is four of the big five. Yes, there you go. Other large igneous provinces are linked to smaller extinction events, like Middle Jurassic, Middle... Uh, uh, the middle of the the cretaceous also periods of global ocean oxygen level drops ocean anoxia often line up with large igneous provinces particularly oceanic plateaus which in turn often line up with major extinctions and other crises
1: it's often when i've seen it mentioned it kind of has the feeling the vibe of like here's this extinction Here's some of the causes we suspect may have been uh part of it it, it its occurrence, and also there is these de- there's these large igneous provinces. Yep,
0: just and, it always seems to be. Th- I think I yeah. made the joke at the end in the Snowball Earth episode. I made the joke that large igneous provinces are like the League of Shadows. Yes, yeah. Like when an empire collapses, they're always there. Yeah, it, well, it always has a feeling <laughs> of like
1: I'm just mentioning them, not pointing any fingers, but you know. <laughs> Felt like I should
0: let you know that they were around. There have been lots of discussions about particular cases, about exactly how closely do the dates line up, because it can be hard to date an extinction. It can be hard sometimes to date an igneous province, even, to find, was this the pulse of of eruption if it was going on for 20 million years and the extinction happened sometime during that? Is that specifically, you know, does it really line up? So there have been dating discrepancies and dating discussions. But if you list all the large igneous provinces we know of by their date, and you list all the major extinction events we know of by their date, clearly they line up. Yeah. There is a lot of matchup. Some researchers have even suggested that large igneous province volcanism might be a prerequisite for mass extinction events.
1: Well, that was the thought that I had is that, you you mentioned that Though it seems like a, an extreme concept, which it is, it's not uncommon. Like yeah, there They're are all a, over the world. Igneous provinces, just all over, happening throughout Earth's history. You know, they aren't rare uh, gems of occurrences. They are a natural thing that's happening on our planet at almost any given time throughout our vast history. Yeah. Which means that if something else weird happens... There's a decent chance that it could happen and sync up with one of these mm-hmm. expulsions of earth of inner earth material, yeah. And that one-two punch might be what triggers
0: and a mass extinction. We've talked about that with the end Cretaceous. Mm-hmm. That it could be that you had this volcanism going on uh, that led to a weakened scenario, primed for an extinction when the asteroid hit. <laughs> it's,
1: it's it's not like large igneous provinces aren't the ones that push you down the stairs but they're the one that
0: stand behind your knees but <laughs> crouch down behind you and then you now, get pushed by the asteroid in some cases it like the end permian is typically attributed mostly to volcanic activity mm-hmm. uh, the end triassic is also sometimes it does seem like they it is the one that pushes you down the stairs <laughs> but large igneous provinces do not equal extinction all the time There are provinces that are not associated with major extinction events. The Ethiopian and Yemen traps, which are about 30 million years old. The Columbia River basalts that I mentioned earlier, about 16 million, just to name a couple, are not seemingly associated with any major uh, extinctions or crises. There are also extinctions and crises that don't have a large igneous province that dates to the same time. Yes. Uh, Notably, the other of the big five. The End Ordovician mass extinction, which is typically uh, ascribed to glaciation, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there we do not know of a large igneous province that happened during that time. So there is a correlation, but it is not a one-to-one. You can't say, "Oh, there was an extinction somewhere around here; there must be a large igneous province that dates to that time." But if you did say that, you, there's a good chance you're not wrong. Yes, yeah, <laughs> but you're not always going to be right.
1: Well, it's it's uh, an example where. There's definite correlation, and in some cases, almost definite causation. Mm-hmm. And in others, causation is debated.
0: Yes. And there has been a lot of discussion about what factors might make provincial volcanism particularly deadly. Yeah. So there has been research that discusses the duration of the eruption. If a lot happens in a short time, that can potentially be extra stressful. The size of the eruption, of course, is going to be a factor. Although, one paper I found noted that the volume of magma does not correlate directly with the likelihood of a crisis. Okay. They noted some of the smallest large igneous provinces are associated with extinctions and some of the largest aren't. So it's not just how much did you produce. There's also the question of where on the world it happened. Hmm. So equatorial volcanism... If you're releasing lots of greenhouse gases, for example, heating up the tropics, producing a bunch of ash and dust in the tropics could potentially be worse if the atmosphere is thinner there, or if climate patterns allow for more dispersal, or if you're just increasing the temperature gradient from the poles to the equator, that can have weird climate effects. So it, it could be that where it happens is influential. Hmm. I also noted the same paper mentioned altitude. Oh, yeah. That if it's high up, it might have a different impact than if it's low down. Also, there's a good chance that the impact depends on where the continents are and what the weather and climate patterns are and ocean currents, because those influence what the climate is and how your ash is going to be distributed or how your temperature impacts are going to change in the long term versus the short term there's been discussion about what was the state of the planet beforehand. Mm-hmm. So if it is, for example, a, you know, the continents and the oceans and the climate is in a malleable state for whatever reason, it's just a state that is less stable, mm-hmm. then you might be more likely to suffer bad effects from the uh, enhanced volcanic activity. And again, the end the Cretaceous extinction is one where we've talked about the volcanism might not have done it by itself but then an asteroid hit yep and it was like you said the one two punch so this is this is a mysterious and fascinating and much studied question is 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 this just coincidence is it just that there's basically quote always mm-hmm. that there, that large igneous provinces are common enough that the odds of an extinction event happening during one are just Pretty good.
1: It's like, did you know this murder happened on a date
0: ending in a Y? Right. Yeah. It happened on a Monday. Is there all these, all these murders happened on Mondays. Is there a correlation? Yeah. There's a one in seven chance. Yeah. But at the same time, oftentimes there will be studies that go, all right, well, we've accurately dated the different stages of this large igneous province and most, the vast majority of the eruption happened at this time. And that's the part that lines up with the extinction. Exactly. So sometimes there is a really nice correlation. And it's one of these, like, you never want to say, you, you it's always, you don't want to make a definitive statement. You don't want to say, yeah, well, a large igneous province, absolutely an extinction, but it's, it's sure is common. Yes.
1: Well, and, and it makes sense because we struggle with the same, in in the same way with the other aspects of the mass extinctions. Like, you know. What aspects of the asteroid hitting were the actual most problematic? Right, is still discussed and debated and nitpicked and adjusted today. You know what caused the glaciation that caused this mass extinction, or what was the series of events that you know caused oxygen levels to plummet, are also very nebulous because you're not talking about an event like a volcano just erupting. Mm-hmm. This took place over hundreds of thousands to millions of years. It was not one singular moment. It was, to us, it looks like a moment because we're looking at it in the past. Right. <laughs> but it was not something that you can just go, yep, and there it was. Right. The moment that killed everything. So they it falls into the similar category that everything does with the mass extinction that it's complex and layered, yes. and it is not easy to say this is definitely what this domino fell
0: and caused the end of the dinosaurs. Yeah. So volcanoes clearly have a major impact on ecosystems mm-hmm. in the small in in the regional terms, in short terms, and in big evolutionary scale terms. Some yeah. of the biggest events in life history are linked to or potentially directly caused by volcanic activity. In short, uh, you don't have to worry about a super eruption. <laughs> and you don't have to worry about large Igneous Province volcanism uh, happening to you. Nope. It could uh, it could be happening right now. In Long, you don't have to worry about an extinction from a super volcano eruption. Uh, but you probably do have to worry about an extinction from large igneous province (laughs) volcanism uh but not right now no so it's fine yep (laughs) (laughs) this is one of those episodes where like i think we said this in a recent uh, episode basically every 10 to 15 minute chunk of this episode discussion could be its own episode yeah easy but i'm gonna stop (laughs) i had we sat down and i was like well going to be a long one yep because we're cramming all of the volcano topics into this one episode because that that's we had a handful of requests for volcano stuff so i hope people have enjoyed this romp through volcano science i know it has been lengthy and detailed and fascinating as always if there's any topics we mentioned in here that you want to hear more about if you want us to do a deeper dive on any of the things we mentioned in passing or mentioned briefly please let us know so that we may add it to our list of episode requests. But of course, before we wrap up, there is one more thing for us. Actually, there's two more things. The second is for us to ramble uh, until (laughs) we play the outro music. But before that, we have a patron question. One of the things our patrons get as a reward for supporting us on Patreon is the opportunity to ask us questions for us to answer here on the podcast. This episode, we actually have two Two patron questions, kind of. So two more things, and the first thing is two more things. Right, the first thing is two more things. Will, regale us with our patron questions for this episode.
1: Gladly. Our questions, first one is from Lewis, who asks, How do you know for certain that something is a fossil and not just a pattern that formed naturally? How do you identify coprolites from other rocks? How do paleontologists identify rocks to split open to find fossils inside. And Altea, who asks similarly, how do paleontologists know that certain bones are part of a particular fossil? And how do you know where the bones go? I'm thinking especially of fragmented fossils or multiple bodies being found in one place, and some ancient life, like anomalocaris looking super weird.
0: <laughs> These are all excellent questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they all revolve around the same point of when we find a thing, how do we know the thing that it was? Yes. How do um, we know what we're looking at? Totally valid. Uh, there are fossils that don't look like fossils. Uh, the anomalocaris example is very fun because that is a case where multiple body parts were originally identified as separate organisms mm-hmm. before it was realized that they all go together. How do we tell a poop from just a rock? All great questions. The short answer is that things that were once living have particular structures and compositions that distinguish them from other things.
1: Yeah. And this is going to sound like a very flippant answer, but we're going to go into it.
0: They look like life. Right. (laughs) Now we should specify that sometimes we don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is, I think this often gets, you know, I'll get asked this at the museum. People will say, hey, when you find a little, like, just a little chunk of bone, how do you know what it goes to? And I say, sometimes we don't.
1: Yeah, if it's actually a splinter of bone, it may never get paired up with what
0: it goes to, ever. And I see that on, you know, online. uh, I'll see people in, like, news articles. They'll be like, how do you, like, find a toe bone and know what the animal was? And sometimes we don't. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just a toe bone and we go, well, it's a toe of something and then we move on.
1: Well, and that's why often, uh, and this has happened in the news when we've discussed things uh, or talking about like a lot of the, uh, regional episodes, you know, talking about Australia and Antarctica when listing through like what was found in this age, there's tons of examples where it's, and a theropod, right? We have a toe bone, you know, in this example, a toe bone that is definitely theropod. It's shaped like other theropod toes. Mm-hmm. We don't know whose because we don't have enough of the, uh, the rest of the theropod to know what group it definitely would have been grouped into.
0: Right. But it's, it's we can give you a general idea. The sh- The quick response and, and sort of the broad response to how do we identify it is that paleontologists spend a lot of time studying anatomy of modern animals. Yes. And the wonderful thing about evolution is that all life shares features and has distinguishing features. hmm So that... Every species has body structures that look different from every other species. And every bone in the body looks different. Like a humerus looks like a humerus and a femur looks like a femur. But a human femur and a cow femur and a frog femur and a turtle femur are going to look different just because they evolved on different paths. Yes, they're different groups. So they just ancestrally
1: started with different uh, features and different attributes and they are living differently. And so they have evolved to different lifestyles. Yes.
0: So if we know enough about that feature, we can identify, yeah, if if it's an animal we know very well. You know, if you find the head of a horse femur, Mm -hmm. someone out there can tell you it's a horse femur. Yep. Because that's just an animal that is very well studied. If you've, I, I would imagine that if you find any like... Square inch of human bone from yes. any part of the human body. Someone could tell you what it's from because yeah. it's human. And we, we just have a sense of, I well, have a knowledge of the structure, the composition, the shape of a rib versus a toe versus skull bones and whatnot. So in those cases, it often comes down to just the shape. It comes down to the features on it, mm-hmm. where the muscles attach this and that, the composition, how it's structured, different bone, of different animals and different parts of the body is often structured yeah. differently. What is the
1: texture or density or actual makeup of
0: the bone? Same thing with seeds and pollen and wood and leaves. It It's partially ancestry and it's partially function mm-hmm. that causes them all to be different. And if they're different enough and if we know enough, sometimes we don't.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? Like you said, sometimes it's the toe bone and we go, all right, theropod dinosaurs have toes like this, but... We can't tell you which of the millions of theropod dinosaurs this was. Yeah, it could be something new. For like, all, it,
1: like, it's a, maybe a situation where this is a new species, but we can't confirm that yet.
0: Like, if you find a snake tooth or a crock tooth. yeah, All right, snake yep. or croc, that, And that's as good as we can get. When it comes to something like uh, Anomalocaris, we didn't know that those fossils get, went together until we found them together.
1: Yeah, so we might stay wrong about something for quite some time until we find... The fossil, or if we find the fossil that will correct us.
0: Yeah, if we, there have been cases of dinosaurs, for example, where, yeah, we found arms. Yes. And that was it. Uh, So we didn't know what the rest of the body looked like.
1: I still have a a book that was talking about there's an Asaurus and what a massive predator.
0: Yes. We are waiting (laughs) to find. We know these are arms. We know it's some kind of dinosaur, but all we have are arms. We don't know the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And there have even been cases where, yeah, we've got maybe an arm. And a, f- a tailbone, but we didn't know they went together until we found a complete skeleton and went, "Oh, okay, those separate ones match up with this. Yep. That's part of the same animal."
1: Yep, and that, well, and that's like you said with the Nile That's w- then the, whichever was named first becomes the name for the whole thing. Yes,
0: which is why it's named weird shrimp. Yep,
1: because it was named after its mouth part. Yep, that looked like a weird shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> Another version of this question, and this may be what our, our patrons were partially asking this would be very common in the museum is not just like what, what are the ways that you tell them apart? And like, technically we do like there are listed ways to describe Mm -hmm. species apart. And so we have features that we know, but often I would be asked, how are you able, right? How How are you doing that right now? Yes. And the, uh, an analogy the the comparison I would always give is it's the same way that you can give a car part to a car person and they can tell you what it is, but often even like what car it's from. Like, yes. oh, yeah, that's from a Honda somewhere in the 70s. Like Marissa Tome. Yeah. Like they can just look at it and know because they've been looking at cars for so long that they just have a database of knowledge. They may not even be able to describe right away what they're identifying. Mm-hmm. That half the time when I'm like, oh, yeah, that's definitely fish. And some will be like, how do you know that? Like, it looks like fish. Yes. Sometimes
0: it's just you've seen enough. Well, like uh, uh, Laura, our friend Laura and our friend Sean at the museum. Those two can identify a piece of taper bone. Mm -hmm. Here's a little piece of bone. That's taper. How do you know? Because I have seen a thousand taper bones and that's just the shape and texture and structure. That's what it is. I know
1: what it looks like. It's it's just I have the uh, experience
0: of knowing what it looks like. Now, a couple of the other specific questions there, Lewis asked, how do you tell a fossil from a naturally formed structure? And again, sometimes that's really hard, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially when it gets to like microscopic things. And we've talked about that a lot, like episode 100, about how some of the earliest evidence of life might not be. Yeah, like microbial evidence can often leave the
1: same kind of or very similar traces as just natural geological and chemical
0: Mm -hmm. occurrences. To use a more typical example, uh, people will often say, how do you tell rock from bone? Mm. How do you tell rock from wood? And that often comes down to shape and structure. Bone has an internal structure that you won't see in rock, that you won't see in wood. Bone and wood are not built the same way a rock
1: is. Yes. They they aren't formed the same way because bone and wood is grown Mm -hmm. and rock
0: isn't, so... They fundamentally are different. (laughs) So they're structured differently. Their shape will be different because there's a function to the shape, Mm -hmm. right? A bone shape has a function, whereas a rock shape does not. So even when you get a
1: very organic looking, you know, glob of rock that's smooth and curvy in all the right ways that a bone typically is, Mm -hmm. there's still not usually a pattern to it. Right. It's not functional.
0: This rock wasn't doing anything. It wasn't bending or moving. And the texture might be different. And uh, I think the most, the easiest example that works a lot of the time is if you break it open. Yes. <laughs> the inside of a rock is going to look like rock, but the inside of bone is going to be bone. Yes. Or filled in with other minerals. And then Lewis also asked about coprolites and how do we tell rocks from coprolites? Uh, that's actually really hard. Mm-hmm. Episode 30, we talked a bunch about that. Sometimes it comes, often it comes down to what's in it. Yeah. Uh, chemically, Coprolites tend to be full of phosphates and things like that. And then also if there's like little bones and stuff in it. yep, Because something ate stuff. So all that together, it really just comes down to knowing what the thing you're looking for looks like. What do bones look like? What do insect parts look like? Leaves, roots, wood, poops. What chemical features and structural features and outside shapes do those things have and why do they have them? Mm Mm-hmm right is it because of the way they grow is it because of the function that they serve is it because of their evolutionary history who they're related to why are those features there helps you to understand what will have those features and how to differentiate plant from bone from cuticle from whatever else
1: and it's not to say that these mistakes are not potential and easy to make especially when you're learning uh, sure, sure. Like when you're first getting your start out looking for fossils, you know, or excavating or studying fossils, you'll make lots of moments of like, is this bone? Someone oh, yeah. someone who knows. <laughs> Please help me. Did I find a thing? Or do I need to just get it out of the way? I
0: still get nervous. Yeah. Anytime someone asks whether like, hey, I found this rock in my garden. Is this a dinosaur? And I'm like, I mean, no, <clears throat> that's not a dinosaur. But oh i'm always like oh man there's so many ways to get tripped up
1: yeah, those were the very often the answer something along the lines of in my experience <laughs> i think <Right>. most
0: likely <laughs> that
1: no it's not an egg
0: and it's worth pointing out that mistakes are made all the time yes uh and you often not egregious mistakes but Bones and wood and such are often misidentified, especially when there's not a lot of it at first, Mm -hmm. or when the preliminary analysis is not very detailed. Uh, There are absolutely cases where this bone was thought to be part of this, or this feature was overlooked because it wasn't thought to be fossil remains, or this was suggested to be microbial evidence of something, and then later analysis showed that, no, that's probably just natural non-biologic features so mistakes and errors and confusions happen in not just in like among students yes or amateurs but like professional published paleontology that that kind of confusion can and does still happen
1: yeah and that one that's why we retest things and Mm -hmm. that's why other researchers take a look at it and try to verify or debunk whether it is or isn't uh, geological or organic
0: Now, I always hesitate in these to... I don't want to make it sound like paleontologists are just guessing at stuff. No. Because there are definitely people who would hear this discussion and go, aha, I knew it. <laughs> Most of the time, yeah, we know what we're doing. Yes. that's a, It's a field of science for that reason. It is built upon extensive knowledge and experimentation and study. But, yeah, to your questions, uh, the both of these questionings seem to have that same foundation that we've both heard so many times of... It just seems so hard, mm-hmm. and yes, it is. Yeah. Well, and I assume, yeah, absolutely is. In the
1: early days of paleontology, it yeah, it probably happened constantly. Oh yeah, until enough knowledgeable people and enough uh, experience and examples were built up for someone to go like, hey, you know what, that fossil that we've had sitting up on the shelf for the last twenty years. We've not found anything else that that's shaped. <laughs> We're pretty sure it's a rock. Yep. Like that, I'm sure in those early decades, it was happening much more frequently until we finally built up enough knowledge to go, okay, yeah, no, that's actually not a thing. Mm-hmm. Or actually, yeah, you know what? <laughs> I thought this was a nothing, but then we found 20 more identical nothings. Oh, yeah. And that still happens today every now and then, too. And realized it actually is... Fossil it just we didn't recognize what it was right away so we assumed it yeah it wasn't and so part of the reason we're able to do it as confidently as we can today is over decades and years and years of building up the knowledge so that now we are dealing with the distilled what to look for and what not to look for yes.
0: Great questions, Mm -hmm. uh, fundamental questions. Thank you both for asking it. Thanks to everybody who supports us on Patreon and everybody who listens. (gasps) I think it's about time. Yeah, it's good. To wrap up this giant episode. Thank you to everybody for listening. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that uh, you had as much fun in this I want to say a deep dive, but it wasn't no. in this shallow breeze by <laughs> of all there is to say about volcanoes and their and their geologic history and their relation to life and fossils. It, this was a fascinating one. Their, volcanoes are cool. <laughs> they are. They are so interesting. As usual, like I said, if you want to hear more about these topics or any other topics, reach out to us and add requests for us to do. If you'd like to support us and our scientific education endeavors, you can support us on Patreon. You can tell other people about us. You can leave reviews on the iTunes or wherever you listen to us. You can follow us on the social media. We love getting new people who listen and new people who support us. We love hearing from you. So any way that you like to engage with us, please feel free to do so. As a reminder, shortly after this episode comes out, we are celebrating our five-year anniversary with a live stream that anybody is welcome to join on January 29th at 2 pm Eastern time where we will be making some special announcements in celebration of this milestone that we have hit this is the last episode oh, of yeah. our first five years <gasps> oh that's
1: this is so it cool I'm glad
0: it was big yes this is we're going out and, and you know what spoilers the next one's gonna be really cool too yeah I'm so I'm not going to. I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm so excited for the next episode. Uh, Next episode is our Darwin Day episode for this year. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I've I've been geeking out a little bit. (laughs) So keep your eyes out for all that. Follow us on the social media. Tell us if you have any favorite things or memories about the five years of the Common Descent podcast. We would love to hear from you. We release episodes. Every fortnight, five mm-hmm. years of fortnights. That's like 130 fortnights. Well, I guess it's 131 fortnights, isn't it? Because that's the number of episodes. I did math. Ah, I was like, yeah. all right, 52 weeks in a year, 26 fortnights times five, that's 130. And I was real proud of myself. And then I remembered it's just the number of episodes. Yep, yep. That
1: we've done. <laughs> if only we had a convenient way to track <laughs> it.
0: I did all this work. <laughs> <laughs> Every fortnight, and we will continue to do so for the foreseeable future um oh uh let's pretend that i said this a few minutes ago mm. boy we're we're going out of five years with a bang Nah. <laughs> i'm here all five years yes <laughs> here's to another five years and then we'll see and then yeah who yeah, we'll, we'll see we'll see we'll see well we'll see if we're appreciated yeah right out there so <laughs> yeah better follow us on social media you
1: have to reprove it to us every five years
0: (laughs) or else we're quitting we uh greatly appreciate all of our podcast listeners even the silent ones that we don't even know exist (laughs) (laughs) all right let's wrap this up we gotta go to sleep
1: (laughs) yeah yeah it's about that time
0: good night everybody bye